The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. World War II. It's a subject we've touched on so many times throughout multiple sucks, but we've never covered it in its entirety. So that's what we're going to try and do today and next week. We'll cover as much as we can. And what I think we'll probably end up clocking it at around five and a half, six hours, uh, over two episodes, not just today. We could truly spend a year's worth of episodes, literally thousands of hours, diving into all the battles in various theaters and combatants of this war, unlike any other war fought in the history of the world. And we would still not cover it all. The scale of World War II was just so mind-numbingly massive. Estimates vary from source to source and always will, but conservatively, over 60 million people died in World War II, including anywhere from 38 to 55 million civilians. To put that number in perspective, roughly 17 million meat sacks died in the next biggest war in modern history, World War I. More people died in World War II in less than a decade than all the people killed by the Mongol invasions of the 13th and 14th centuries. More people died than the up to 40 million people killed in ancient China during the Three Kingdoms War that began in 184 CE and lasted for nearly a century. Never before had the world absorbed so much human blood shed by conflict in such a relatively short span of time than it did less than a century ago. So why was it ever fought? The instability created in Europe by the First World War is what set the stage for another international conflict just barely over two decades later, World War II. Rising to power in an economically and politically unstable Germany, Adolf Hitler, leader of the Nazi party, rearmed the nation and strategic signed strategic treaties with Italy and Japan to further his ambitions of world domination. Hitler's invasion of Poland in September of 1939 drove Great Britain and France to declare war on Germany, marking the beginning of World War II. Over the next six years, the conflict would take more lives and also destroy more land and property around the globe than any previous war ever. Germany would advance relentlessly west, gobbling up Norway and Denmark, the Netherlands and Belgium in its Blitzkrieg or lightning war strikes before arriving in France and forcing their quick surrender to the Nazis. And then it seemed like for a short time that Hitler was going to go on to occupy Great Britain, leading Germany to completely dominate Europe and force a continent to bend the knee to the horrific new ideals of the nationalistic and destructive Nazi state, a state that would have inevitably gone on to try and rule the rest of the world. Their ambition was limitless. But thanks to the brave efforts and sacrifices of many heroes, both remembered and forgotten, that would never happen. To pave the way for a planned amphibious land invasion, Operation uh, Sea Lion, Nazi planes bombed Britain extensively beginning in September 1940 until May of 1941, known as the Blitz. 
including night raids on London and other industrial centers that caused heavy civilian casualties and damage. But in the first major Allied triumph of World War II, Britain's Royal Air Force eventually defeated their Nazi aerial combat counterparts, the Luftwaffe, in the Battle of Britain and forced Hitler to postpone his plans to invade. Plans that he would never return to because Mother Russia. Hitler foolishly turned his sights on the Soviet Union, the perfect place, he thought, for the German people's Liebestrom, or living space. How wrong he would be. Early, quick successes against weaker opponents had given Hitler a tremendous amount of false confidence that would lead to so much death. As was the case with Britain, conquering the Soviet Union wouldn't be nearly as easy as Hitler imagined. In fact, it would prove impossible. Meanwhile, while Britain faced off with Germany and Europe, the United States took the international lead in combating Japanese aggression, which by late 1941 included an expansion of its ongoing deadly war with China and the seizure of European colonial holdings in the Far East. The December 7th, 1941 Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor would set off both the U.S.'s entrance into World War II in Europe and the Pacific, making World War II truly a global conflict. Every populated continent on Earth sent young men to fight and to die. The Allies faced off primarily with two formidable enemies, the Japanese in the Pacific and the Nazis in Europe, who both wanted world domination. Beating one of them wouldn't have been easy. Beating both seemed impossible at times. Keeping up the morale of millions of citizens while bombs rained down on their cities and soldiers and while volunteers of all kinds went off to help the war effort was incredibly difficult. Victory would be costly. The Allies knew going into the war that best case, millions would die. But the alternative was worse. A world remade in the image of the racist, fascist, and brutal policies of the Axis powers. Repelling Nazi aggression in the West and imperial Japanese aggression in the East had to be done. The fate of the world literally depended on it. The stakes could not possibly be higher. The Nazis and the Japanese and their cohorts wanted to turn the world into an almost unimaginable dystopian wasteland of constant fear, tyranny, suffering, and death. By the end of the war, between, 80, between 60 and 80 million people would be dead, entire cities raised to rubble or forever transformed, and the global balance of power shifted significantly. Communism would spread Soviet Union into Eastern, uh, uh, the Soviet Union, excuse me, would spread communism into Eastern Europe as well as its eventual triumph in China, paving the way for the Cold War that would later push the U.S. and the Soviet Union to the brink of nuclear annihilation. Dozens of former colonial possessions of European powers would get their freedom due to World War II. After 1945, three dozen new states in Asia and Africa achieved independence, reshaping the international community forever. In many ways, World War II transformed the world into the shape as we know it today. This topic, even if you're not a history buff, it should still be for you. It should be of interest to everyone alive. It's well worth learning about for a vast myriad of reasons. So let's get to learning the battles, the leaders, many of the people, both big and small, who helped freedom and democracy win World War motherfucking two right now, right here on this Nazis, bombs and battles edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suckmaster, Suck Skywalker. Guy trying to come to terms with the possibility that his father founded Bear Evil Incorporated. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise good boy Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, I'm going to do my best today to get through all this information as best I can. Brain's a little foggy, got a little head cold, which is why I'm uh, wearing the over-ears uh, instead of the in-ears as far as uh, headphones for you YouTube watchers. Just a uh, time of year, little little bugs going around. And just um, just know if I do mispronounce stuff, which I will, 
that I, I, I looked up phonetic spellings literally for hours for every possible word that I thought I could find. But when you're bouncing around the globe and trying to keep information moving and you got a little mouth, well, mistakes are going to happen. So just uh, throwing that out there. But I'm, I'm so excited for this uh, content. I thought Sophie did a great job with the research, and I think I did a pretty good job adding to it as well. Uh, before we get into it, very important Bad Magic Giving Tree announcement coming up. Uh, the uh, uh, Then I'll, yeah, I'll give the merch stuff. Sorry, my brain is a little foggy. Getting to go through the merch and a few other announcements, talk about the giving tree, and then get into the content. Uh, super cool, cool merch starting off. The Time Suck collectible cards are back. Volume 2 now on the shelves. So fuck yeah, bro. Uh, Sucker Raymond Roll. Back again with the magic for episodes 51 through 100. Some great cards in here. Uh, Richard Kuklinski, Heaven's Gate Colt, The Jersey Devil, The Green River Killer. So many more illustrations. Uh, thanks again, Raymond, for the hard work and dedication to each episode. You can find him at harleywarren.com if you'd like to show him some support for his uh, uh, original designs. And that's H-A-R-L-E-Y-W-A-R-R-E-N.com. I uh, just ordered one of his shirts last week. Uh, a little skull, Hunter S. Thompson. Can't wait to get it. Seems like a great guy and his designs are fantastic. Uh, and limited quantities of volume one uh, are back in the store as well. So you can go to badmagicmerch.com. Check that stuff out. Holiday order cutoff is December 7th. If you want to try and ensure a delivery for the holidays in time, uh, add a couple weeks for international shipping. Reminder that in honor of November containing Veterans Day, we donated to a veteran cause again this year. This year we donated $15,220 to the United Heroes League who provide free sports equipment, game tickets, cash grants, skill development camps, and special experiences to military families across not just the U.S., but also in Canada. Uh, the United Heroes League keeps military kids active and healthy through sports while their parents serve their nations. So to find out more, please visit unitedheroesleague.org. Also donated $1,692 to our upcoming scholarship fund. And now the fourth annual Bad Magic Giving Tree, our fourth chance to collectively give back to the community that gives so much to us. Like all previous years, we'll be using the December Patreon donation to kick this off. Estimate that to be about 15K. If any fans would like to donate to the cause as they have in years past, we're again only accepting Amazon gift cards. Don't have the bandwidth to do anything but that. It's the most effective way for us to shop with limited time and energy. Just like in years past, Lindsay and I will be matching any and all donations. You make up to 15K. If fully matched, we'll have about $45,000 to work with. If you'd like to donate, go to Amazon.com, purchase a gift card. When you fill out the box of whom to send the card to, enter the following email address, givingtree2022 at badmagicproductions.com. That's givingtree2022 at badmagicproductions.com. That'll be in the episode description. If you're in need, it's going to be a very straightforward process this year. If you want in on this, starting this coming Monday, November 21st at noon Pacific time, We'll be accepting applications on the website, badmagicmerch.com. That'll be the only way to submit your family this year. One and only way. We can help about 50 families this year, and the first 50, 50 families who apply will receive that help. The submission form will live on our website until we have either 50 families or until November 26th, whichever comes first. You can rest assured that if you filled out and submitted the application, you're getting help. No more waiting and wondering. That's what we're trying to avoid this year. Once 50 families have applied, Application won't allow anyone else to fill it out. It's a new system, so please be patient. Uh, we will receive your application, then reach out to you. We'll be shopping, sending out gifts from December 1st through December 12th and look forward to bringing our community together once again to love and support one another. And again, you can find the info for that in the episode description. Hail fucking Nimrod. And now on to today's massive topic. 
a topic that maybe aside from the dark ages is just the biggest topic we've ever tried to directly cover here on Time Suck. We've already discussed portions of World War II in several past episodes from true crime stories like Marcel Petio, Nazi serial killer, uh, the Nazi killing Bielski brothers to topics like the Manhattan Project, Operation Greenup, a.k.a. the real life and glorious bastards, the inspiring and heartbreaking tale of the Warsaw Ghetto, the remarkable story of the Navajo code talkers, and in our episode on the race uh, against the Enigma machine to crack Hitler's codes. Also have covered Hitler in depth, his rise to power, uh, one of our earliest episodes, the rise of the Third Reich, as well as some of the uh, what the fuck crazy shit uh, some of his cronies did in the Nazi search for the Holy Grail. What a wonderful mind you have, Carl. I'm so excited for to find the tunnels to Shul and the Aryan ice giants and the visits and stuff. I still think about that one sometimes. Uh, and of course, we uh, most recently covered the horrific Holocaust in our two-part series there and also covered some of the evil wartime experiments Japan performed on prisoners years ago in the Unit 731 episode. So we've been dancing around World War II in so many topics for the entirety of this podcast existence, basically. About time we take a more direct look, even though we will undoubtedly uh, you know, leave many things on the table as we journey through our timeline. There's just, again, so much cover this massive topic and also try to try to not to repeat ourselves we'll be leaving out most of the details of some of the things we've already covered like the holocaust not because you know it's not important obviously just you know it's already received uh in-depth treatment also we'll split up our coverage into two episodes the first episode today primarily will cover the war in europe hitler progressing ruthlessly through europe with help from stalin at first then uh, from Mussolini and fascist Italy, and then the Allies' effort to contain and destroy the Nazi threat in not just Europe, but in Northern Africa as well. Then in next week's episode, we'll hop over to Japan and what historians call the Pacific Theater, or the War in the Pacific, to cover the war as it would take place there. The expansion of Imperial Japan, uh, the United States' strategy of island hopping to regain territory taken by the Japanese Empire, all culminating in the U.S.'s still highly controversial dropping of two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So throughout both episodes, we'll get into some stories and personal accounts, as well as overviews of many of the major battles, events, and campaigns. Let's fucking go! There's so many different places we can start with when it comes to examining World War II. Uh, Let's begin with this name. The name World War II implies that it was a sequel, that it was a continuation of World War I. And it, in a way, it definitely was. World War I began in Europe in 1914 when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot by a Serbian nationalist in an age when empires were trying to expand, claiming more territory and resources and sizing one another up, leading, te- leading you know, tensions to grow and grow as parts of these empires expressed their desires to split off. The assassination of the Archduke and his wife was the spark that sent Europe into that first world war. The world, or at least much of it, thanks to the global colonial possessions of Europe and various alliances uh, that dragged multiple continents into one continent's mess and then split between two groups, the Central Powers and the Allied Powers. The Central Powers were Germany, which backed Austria-Hungary, along with Turkey, a.k.a. the Ottoman Empire, and the Kingdom of Bulgaria. The principal Allied Powers, uh, so many additional nations would also join their fight, were France, United Kingdom, Russia, Italy, Japan, and the most important Allied Power, San motherfucking Marino. San Marino, man. If not for their massive contributions, and not just World War I, but World War II as well, the Germans would rule the world right now. A lot of people just think that San Marino threw a lot of touchdowns for the Miami Dolphins in the 80s and 90s, and he did do that. But also, he beat the fuck out of the Axis powers in Europe. No, wait, uh, no, Dan Marino did that, the football part. San Marino is the smallest nation in Europe, if you don't count the Vatican City, which I don't. 
If Italy didn't help uh, the Vatican out, uh, I could round up enough people in my neighborhood to fucking kick the shit out of them. Uh, Their population is 453 dudes who probably don't fight much. San Marino, a little bit bigger. Around 35,000 people. They contributed 10 volunteers to fight in World War I. Not kidding. Literally 10. But that's not, it's nothing. But it's not enough for a football team. They declared neutrality in both World War I and World War II because they're fucking tiny. Don't have a military. They mostly just wanted to farm and make cheese. Not be fucked with. You're adorable, San Marino. Don't ever, don't ever change. Don't ever stop being you, whatever that is. I take the time to learn more about you, but, you know, come on. You're San Marino. There's a lot other bigger, better countries to study. You know, life's short. No hard feelings. If these comments really hurt my download numbers in San Marino, you know, who fucking cares? I still think, I still think you're the greatest quarterback to never win a Super Bowl. Anyway, the United States was the other principal allied power, not San Marino. World War One. I'm going to randomly pick on San Marino this episode. Uh, France, United Kingdom, Russia, Italy, Japan, and the U.S. Uh, and then just 30 years after the Allied powers won that war, World War II would renew a conflict between these nations and others. Fought almost along these same lines, though with the rise of their own fascist governments and desires for territorial expansion, Italy and Japan would become part of the new Axis powers with Germany. This time, the war was even more intense, lasted even longer, six years rather than four as I mentioned, World War II, uh, yeah, continuation of World War I, the harsh reparations of Germany that came at the end of World War I, the Treaty of Versailles would lead to Hitler's rise as he rallied the Germans to believe that they had been fucked over, unfairly treated, needed to take back their place in global history. Uh, however, despite being a continuation, World War II, a very different war than World War I. The sequel, a lot more action-packed than the than the original. Despite only taking place just over two decades later, World War II was fought with a very different military technology, much more advanced. Uh, it had advanced so much in the interwar years. In World War I fighting took place mostly in the trenches. Other than the trained infantry, most of their weaponry and methods of fighting back then consisted of artillery, machine guns, slow-moving tanks, poisonous gases, very early renditions of warplanes, Uh, In Britain alone, over a million men volunteered to fight in the First World War at its onset. The first tank was introduced into the war by the British in 1916 as they realized they needed a better and safer way to be mobile. Germany was rather frustrated with having to fight in the trenches and not being able to progress forward, particularly since they were outnumbered, something Hitler would take into account in World War II. We'd learn from World War I. Early battles of World War I were more more like uh, Napoleonic battles, right? Uh, In the late summer of 1914, France's army advanced to the attack across virgin countryside wearing red trousers and blue overcoats uh, led by bands playing. Yep, fucking bands with flutes and stuff. Flags flying, officers mounted on chargers, aka horses, wearing white gloves, waving swords. Swords. Motherfuckers were still waving swords in battle in World War I. While mostly ceremonial, some soldiers were getting killed via sword still. What an odd way to die in the 20th century. Like, I wonder if you got stabbed by a sword in World War I. You know, did, did you die after expressing some version of, are you fucking kidding me? Did you really just stab me with a sword in 1917? After riding up to me on a horse? Fuck. I'm sad to die and also embarrassed. I thought we'd all agree to switch the guns a long time ago. Uh, during World War II, some officers did have ceremonial swords still. A few dudes probably were stabbed under extremely rare circumstances when they ran out of ammo or a gun jammed. But... Much more advanced weaponry was used almost always with uh, more modern, much faster tanks. Tanks, big factor in World War II. Uh, submarines, airplanes, introduction of nuclear missiles, covert operations. Right, tanks from World War, well, you know, the nuclear bombs at the end of the war. Uh, tanks from World War I were rolling along barely at around four miles per hour. The, uh, the, the, some of the Nazis' panzer tanks, excuse me, could hit over 30 miles an hour. 
and could off-road it comfortably at a thousand miles an hour. No, at 10 miles an hour. That'd be, that'd be a massive difference if they, they went from four in World War I to a thousand miles per hour in World War II. No, it was uh, 10 miles per hour though in the brush. Uh, there were still numerous cavalry divisions of horse-mounted soldiers in World War II, but they were not a major part of the war at all. And those soldiers carried, you know, much more modern weapons. One of the modern weapons used mostly by the Western Allies during World War II was the Swedish-designed Bofors 40-millimeter gun, an anti-aircraft auto cannon, but really an anti-everything cannon. Fully automatic, with a practical firing rate of 80 to 100 rounds per minute, shooting high-explosive shells, theoretically capable of taking out an airplane, flying it up to 23,490 feet. Very capable of taking out planes at up to 12,500 feet. Excuse me. Fucking cold. Uh, Big fucking gun. Highly effective as a defense mechanism for ground, naval, or air forces. Versions still in use around the world today. One of the many weapons unlike, you know, uh, anyone fighting in World War I had ever seen. Very good at eviscerating. Excuse me. Anyone parachuting down to try and kill you with a sword. You know, if that were to happen. Uh, War strategy two had evolved so much since World War I. Now soldiers wouldn't be stuck in trenches, firing shots back and forth, or slowly and steadily marching towards each other while the fucking band played their drums and flutes, like soldiers in the 19th uh, in the 19th century war with flags and banners. Uh, the U.S. Army had kept drummers and fifers, dudes playing with a kind of flute, basically, uh, with the infantry until they were finally abolished in the field in 1917. So up to 1917, and people were getting sent out on the on the battlefields of Europe with like a flute. I can't figure out if these battlefield musicians carried a, a weapon with them as well, like a pistol or something. Uh, I know they didn't during the U.S. Civil War. Can you imagine heading into a fucking battle with a drum or flute? Wonder if any fifer ever fife someone to death. Worked that flute like Bruce Lee worked the uh, staff and Enter the Dragon. I'm gonna say probably not. Uh, I'm saying when a dude's you know coming for you, your you know your your best probably defense if you just have a flute is to uh, turn and run. Uh, anyway, World War II wasn't fought slowly with dramatic marches and drums and flutes. Instead, Hitler had come up with a new method called the Blitzkrieg, Lightning War. It was as much a psychological tactic as it was a military one. Tested by the Germans during the Spanish Civil War in 1938 and against Poland in 1939, the Blitzkrieg proved to be a formidable combination of land and air actions. Germany's success with the tactic at the beginning of World War II hinged largely on the fact that it was the only country that had effectively linked its combined forces with radio communications. The use of mobility, quick, shocking attacks, locally concentrated firepower, and skillfully coordinated military maneuvers paralyzed an adversary's capacity to organize their defenses. The Nazis essentially figured out for World War II how to do the military equivalent of popping out of the fucking bushes and sucker punching an opponent, right? To start the fight. Surprise, motherfucker! And then after getting hit, their opponents were usually two days to punch back effectively in time to defend themselves. The Nazis hit quick, then exploited their opponents' shock paralysis by penetrating the adversary's rear areas and disrupting their whole system of communications and administration. This battlefield tactic, as employed by the Germans, consisted of a fast splitting thrust on a narrow front by combat groups using tanks, dive bombers, and motorized artillery to disrupt the main and typically somewhat surprised enemy's battle position. Right? Just, oh, oh, shit! These fuckers are here! I, I barely have my pants on! Wide sweeps by armored vehicles followed. Established, uh, they would establish a ring around the opponent that would trap and immobilize them. Oftentimes, it was followed by quick and total surrender. Uh, These tactics were remarkably economical concerning both the lives and resources of the attackers. Didn't have to fire, uh, you know, a lot of shells, got to got to save a a lot of expensive military equipment by not using it. And because the speed and short duration of the campaign, the victims often lost a lot less lives than they would have in a more prolonged attack. 
Uh, despite that, it was also fucking terrifying. Reporter Louis P. Lochner, writing for the Associated Press in May of 1940, would describe it the following way in a cable back to America. Uh, Please indulge me as I add the sounds of a typewriter. Rain hitting the window. Maybe a little bit of light jazz in the background. To give his words just a a little more old-timey ambiance. Air fare is Germany's super ace in this war. Wherefore, front line usually is where dive bombers and heavier bombers have done their devastating work. Now I write of German land forces at last. After crossing over from last German border town in dusk in which morning mist mingled with smoke clouds from roaring planes, it took us but short time to realize how completely the war had been revolutionized by the Air Force. This is how Germany operates in this decisive area. First, air scouters determine just how enemy troops are moving. They learn the exact strength of enemy forces, equipment, types of weapons used, etc. With this knowledge reinforced by photos, Germany's terrorizing stukas, followed by heavy bombers, dash madly down upon the enemy, smashing towns if necessary through which moving troops are pushing, demolishing railway tracks, telephone lines, industrial plants, and annihilating marching columns. Meanwhile, air information services inform speedy mechanized units where bombing has been successful. Quick as lightning, these dart forward, facing the enemy with death-disdaining courage, while foes fall in utter confusion. The suddenness of the attack has usually been proven successful. After these attacks, mobile advance guards have thus routed the enemy so that the main army is ready to move in. We had one glimpse of Germany's extreme preparedness when we saw with what speed bridges were replaced. Fact is, German army engineers have exactly fitting substitute bridges ready for every strategic river or canal crossing in Belgium, France, likely to be dynamated or damaged. German reinforcement cars bring all this ready-made equipment with them on the heels of motorized vanguards. One more thing. Late last night, I noticed a dazzling dish of a dame with no wedding ring, smoking some old golds under the awning of Nick's newsstand. It's already closed down for the day. She was dressed in the nines, black heels, red pencil skirt, white blouse, and a black pillbox hat. And a real Rita Hayworth smile and a figure Aphrodite herself would be jealous of. I became an eager beaver, dying for a reason to gab. Before I was able to ask what's buzzing, cousin, some ace in a shiny new Continental pulled up and she hopped in. Before she shut the door, we shared a moment, and I saw a flicker of fear in her eyes. She wanted me to save her. Before I could move, that sugar daddy pulled her inside and drove my baby away. A5781. I memorized the plate number. I'm going to pull in a favor with the local fuzz here in Italy and look further into this. I just can't stop thinking about her. Huh. All right. Well, uh, sorry. I obviously I got a little carried away there at the end. I got into the crime noir vibe. Uh, a little too much went with it. Uh, back to World War II. I'm curious what happened to that later, though. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the advanced technology, World War II was, uh, yeah, again, much more deadly than World War I. For example, Russia lost 3.3 million military and civilian lives fighting in World War I. That's a staggering number, 3.3 million. Uh, But between 1941 and 1945, fighting World War II, the Russians lost, you know, by by, uh, maybe the most uh, accepted account, 27 million lives. Fuck. Also responsible for up to 90% of the German army's total war loss. Uh, had Russia not also fought the Nazis, there's a good chance the rest of the allies, U.S. included, would not have been able to defeat them. Working with Russia to save the world. What a crazy concept. 
I don't see that happening anytime soon again with a uh, strong pony boy Putin in charge. Uh, the heaviest loss of life for any nation in a single day of World War I occurred July 1st, 1916, during the Battle of the Somme, when the British Army suffered 57,470 casualties, including over 19,000 dead. Compare that to the night of March 9th, 1945, when hundreds of U.S. bombers dropped 1,665 tons of incendiaries, including a half million uh, cylinders of napalm and white phosphorus on Tokyo, Japan. This single night killed more people than the bombings of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, or Dresden. While only 80,000 bodies were found and recorded, it is likely that between 100,000 and 200,000 people died. Roughly a million left homeless. And these weren't soldiers. These were civilians. Up to 200,000 Japanese civilians dead in an act of war in one fucking night that did not involve an atomic bomb. Holy shit. That's massive carnage. And war crime, maybe, right? Had the U.S. lost the war for sure, would have had a lot of politicians and military leaders executed for war crimes. But, you know, in these wars, uh, extreme circumstances, might makes right. Not even saying what they did was wrong, uh, by the way. Just uh, want to point out that the Axis powers weren't the only ones getting their hands dirty in ways we now for sure would call war crimes regardless of circumstance. This, illustra- this illustrates another important shift from World War I to World War II, non-combatant casualties. The line between soldier and civilian blurred way fucking more in World War II than in almost any other large-scale modern conflict. Soldiers on all sides committed atrocities on civilians around the globe. Almost 75% of the total deaths in World War II were from civilians. That amounts to at least 45 million people, a staggering number. Many sources cite the number between 50 and 55 million. It's absurd. That is equivalent to killing literally, yeah, just think about this. That's equivalent to killing literally everyone alive right now in all of the Nordic countries. Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, every man, woman, and child all dead, and also killing everyone alive in Portugal, Ireland, and Greece. All those countries, everyone dead. And that death toll doesn't even count all the combatants who also died in World War II. Yeah. Uh, World War II also affected so many civilians, never directly injured or killed in combat. In America, the war effort on the home front required big sacrifices and cooperation from nearly the entire citizenry. Don't you know there's a war going on? Sorry, I had going. I don't know why my brain. Don't you know there's a war on was a common expression in the mid-1940s. Rationing became part of the everyday life of many Americans who had to learn to conserve vital resources. They lived with price controls, dealt with shortages of everything from nylons to housing, uh, volunteered for jobs ranging from air raid warden to Red Cross worker. To conserve and produce more food, a Food for Victory campaign was launched. Eating leftovers became one's patriotic duty. And civilians, I love leftovers. <laughs> civilians were urged to uh, grow their own vegetables and fruits instead of buying them. Uh, that food needed to be sent to the troops. Millions of victory gardens were planted and maintained by ordinary citizens, appeared in backyards, vacant lots, even public parks. These gardens produced over a billion tons of food. Americans canned food at home and consulted victory cookbooks for recipes and tips to make the most of rationed goods. To overcome shortages brought about by the international trade and mining and manufacturing disruptions caused by the war, war planners also had to look for substitutes for materials one of which was copper. To satisfy the military's demands, copper substitutes had to be found to use in products less important to the nation's defense. The U.S. Mint helped solve the copper shortage during 1943, started making pennies out of steel. Mint also conserved nickel, another important metal, by removing it from, you know, nickels or five-cent coins. Uh, Cocoa production increased to make the Army's standard K rations, which included chocolate bars, and then sugar would have to be rationed for civilians. Americans in the war years of the 1940s would fucking laugh at the outrage over supply chain problems we have today, right? Our problems do not compare at all on any level to what they dealt with. 
right? We have to wait on uh, what? Brand new trucks and cars? Oh no, iPhones right now. Ah, oh, gosh dang, I can't get the new one the day I want it. Oh no! Uh, to help produce more ammunition, Americans were encouraged to save household waste fat, uh, which was used to make glycerin. Other household goods, including rags, paper, silk, and string were recycled, which was new. And despite more employment, thanks to the war effort, taxes also went up, way up, fucking Hitler. We kind of have that dipshit, along with Emperor Hirohito to blame for federal income taxes, right? The worst tax. Not even kidding. Uh, During World War II, the federal income tax entered the lives of many Americans for the very first time and has never gone away. 1939, fewer than 8 million people had ever filed individual income tax returns before. Right in 1945, nearly 50 million people filed. The withholding system of payroll deductions, we still have today another wartime development. Too much tangential uh, information to get into uh, in an already very uh, information-heavy suck. But prior to World War II, did you know that almost no one in the U.S. paid a federal income tax? I did not know that or I forgot. Prior to World War II, only the wealthiest Americans paid a federal income tax. Some of whom were just fucking taxed to a ridiculous level, up to 75% of their income. There would literally be riots if that shit was attempted today. Uh, While the financial requirements of the Civil War prompted the first American income tax in 1861, the 16th Amendment didn't establish Congress's right to impose a federal income tax until 1913. And by 1939, still only about 5% of American workers actually paid it. It was just basically for the wealthy. And then President Roosevelt's proposed Revenue Act of 1942 introduced the broadest and most progressive tax in American history, the victory tax. What a fun fucking name for something that now fucks over so many Americans. It doesn't leave them with enough money to do more than just barely survive. Thanks to the victory tax, about 75% of American workers would now pay income taxes. To ease workers' burden of paying a large sum uh, once a year and to create a regular flow of revenue into the U.S. Treasury, the government required employers to withhold money from employees' checks. Additional tax measures were put in place in 1943. By the war's end of 1945, about 90% of American workers submitted income tax forms. 60% paid uh, taxes on their income, and here we are today still. And once the government got a hold of all that extra income, war or no war, wasn't going to let go of taking our money. Doesn't that feel a little shady to you? does to me. Hitler's been dead a long time now. Uh, at least the money they take is managed really well. Sarcasm. Uh, U.S. government auditors back in 2009, after examining all federal programs for the past five years, found that 22% of them, costing taxpayers a total of $123 billion annually, Failed to show literally any positive impact. (laughs) Fucking cool. Super cool. It's almost like you should have to have some business experience before being allowed to help run the biggest economy in the world instead of just having to win a popularity contest and I'm done ranting about taxes. Let's uh, get back to World War II. Fuck uh, greedy Uncle Sam's bullshit. All right. In addition to taking citizens' money like it had never taken it before, the U.S. government also began essentially borrowing from the citizenry by selling war bonds to the general public. With consumer goods in short supply and thus spending being down, Americans now put uh, much of their money into bonds and savings accounts. Life was incredibly stressful in so many ways for so many people during World War II. You couldn't even send a nice letter home from the front lines or send a package of candy to a loved one fighting to save the world in the way you wanted to. Check out the following correspondence between U.S. soldier John H. Thornton and his sweetheart back home, Miss uh, Nell Fagan. Both from Georgia, Nell wanted to know how to send his, his Christmas package Sending one, doing so months in advance with the hope that it would be, you know, reach him. And the, you know, John writing back, gave her some instructions and a gentle letdown. John writes on page two of his letter, darling, about the candy you want to send me. I would like very much to have some, but I'm afraid it would ruin getting here. Worms get in most of the candy that's sent out. They were in several pieces of that you sent for my birthday. So I'd hate to see things like that ruin. I hate to say don't send it, 
because you might think I don't appreciate what you're trying to do. I appreciate it more than you could ever imagine. Also think you are very thoughtful and it makes me proud to know that a girl like you loves me. I think it's best not to send the candy, but I still want to thank you. Couldn't even fucking get a care package of candy back then. I wonder if that was just because John and Nell, you know, didn't think to uh, hop on board uh, Amazon Prime shipping. JK, I hope you know that I was kidding before I said JK. I, I do know that Amazon Prime wasn't around back then. They should have used FedEx. Also JK. Uh, but for the most part, soldiers tried to downplay the horrors of the war and their letters back home. This was partially due to enforced censorship, couldn't risk sensitive information, getting into enemy, enemy hands. You know, uh, revealing uh, low troop morale would be some of that information. Also, many soldiers probably just wanted to shield families from the true horrors of the war so as not to worry or frighten them. While the soldiers who fought against some of the most fearsome enemies of all time, there's a good reason so many of our fictional villains are now modeled off of the Nazis, uh, would undoubtedly be called to make the biggest sacrifices. There was hardly a person alive that World War II didn't touch. White, black, American Indian, male, female, adult, child, everyone. Probably probably even lizard people hiding in their underground lairs. Sure, they feed on our fears, but maybe some of them got bombed too. I have to ask David Icke. Yeah, if I ever meet him. But seriously, whole cities were transformed. Communities rallying to offer whatever support they could for the war effort. Uh, let's look here in uh, in Idaho. Look locally at some communities. In the late 1930s, as Nazi Germany was growing stronger, Idaho was a quiet, rural state focused on farming and geographically removed from any of the political strife in Europe. Within 10 years, however, there would be air bases at uh, Gowan Field and a mountain home that were critical to the war effort. Those bases would alter the fabric of their surrounding communities in a, you know, in a real way. New jobs at Gowan Field brought in many new groups of people to Idaho. In 1942, the African-American population in Idaho, as listed on the census, was written as Lamar. (laughs) As in the entire African-American community of all of Idaho was, you know, a guy named Lamar. He owned and ran a temp work agency called Honkies for Hire. (laughs) I can say that, right? I can say that since I I, I am a honky. Come on, little George Jefferson. One of his favorite words. Uh, of course, the census form does not list Lamar and plays the number. That's just fucking so funny for me to think about, though, that that would happen. Like, you're just looking at this dry sheet of just so many numbers, just these charts. And then there's, instead of, there's like 37, 142, and then just Lamar. Uh, in 1942, the African-American population in Idaho was listed as 595 people uh, against a state population total of around 530,000. Over the course of the next year, the airbase brought 300 more African-Americans into Idaho as soldiers where they would challenge, you know, racist stereotypes, put down roots in the community, and many of their descendants still live in Idaho. Uh, women arrived at the base too. The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps provided clerical support at the base and did many mechanical jobs traditionally reserved for men. The Women's Air Force service pilots also served at Gowan. These women pilots risked their lives ferrying planes and towing targets so that soldiers could practice air-to-air machine gunnery. I didn't know that. Uh, Coeur d'Alene, home of the Suck Dungeon, had an important role in the training of pilots during World War II as well. In 1942, the Broker Hicks Flying Service leased Weeks Field, which had been established as a municipal airport in the early 1920s. At that time, the field only had a small hangar with no water, no utilities. Within a few months, Broker Hicks installed water, electricity, phone and heating system. Large hangar was constructed. In the spring of 1943, North Idaho Junior College, in conjunction with Broker Hicks, was awarded a contract with the War Training Service to house, feed, and instruct cross-country flyers. To accommodate the students, several civilian conservation corps buildings from the Beauty Bay area were transported across Lake Coeur d'Alene to the NIJC campus to be used as classrooms. Uh, the biggest difference at home wasn't the addition of anything new, though. It was the absence of familiar faces. The American Indian Coeur d'Alene tribe, currently based in Plummer, Idaho, a small town of around 1,000 people, about 30 miles from where I record, would permanently lose four of those familiar faces. 
right? Carl, Sol, Louis, Elmer, J, Falcon, Moses, W, Arepa, and Adolf, Alexi made the ultimate sacrifice. Carl Louis would be present and accounted for on the morning of D-Day, June 6, 1944, but would be dead by the day's end. Sol Louis was killed in midair during the paratroopers' descent behind enemy lines. Damn. Calvin Gary from the nearby Spokane tribe, uh, also schooled in plumber, uh, also a paratrooper in D-Day. Gary was shot during the drop as well, but he lived, lived a long life afterwards to tell the story of how his fingers were shot off that day, that day right at the point where they held onto the straps of his parachute. Jeez. Uh, November 21st, 1944, Coeur tribe member Moses Arepa killed in action at the Belgian border as Allied troops moved inland towards Germany. Two others would make the ultimate sacrifice in the Pacific Theater. Private First Class Adolf Alexi killed in action at the South, in the South Pacific, killed fighting on Okinawa Island. April 6, 1945, buried in the 1996th Infantry Division Temporary Cemetery there. Elmer Falcon uh, died of wounds he received in combat in the Philippines. Falcon was the first husband of Joseph Stensger, mother of current Coeur d'Alene Tribal Chairman Ernest L. Stensgar, or Stensger. May all of those brave men rest in peace. Uh, I'm so glad that Sophie Evans thought to find them and share their stories. I'll admit I would have missed that angle of including local veterans into this week's tale. Information about these men and their brave sacrifice will be reported back in the U.S. by Lawrence Nicodemus, who started a, dis- a newspaper called the Dismet Morning Star during the war to give local families information about their loved ones. This was after Nicodemus had gone to enlist but was not accepted, so he opted to choose publishing a newspaper to keep the Coeur d'Alene tribal members in the war connected to home as his way of contributing to the war effort. Right? No one made him do that, just felt like it was the right thing to do. Did it out of a sense of honor and duty. Much respect for Lawrence Nicodemus. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Uh, Bojangles also sends his respect. In addition to the four members who died, dozens of others from the Coeur d'Alene tribe fought overseas and hundreds of non-tribal members from this area fought as well. Dozens of them dying. And all across the country, everywhere from big cities to small towns, everything in between would experience the exact same thing. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, approximately 16 and a half million men and women served in the armed forces in some capacity. From September 16, 1940 through July 25, 1947, roughly a third of the entire U.S. male population, 15 years old and older, served in the war in some way. That's a fucking crazy stat. Roughly a third. Imagine one out of every three dudes, not just one out of every three dudes you know, one out of every three dudes around you, period, actively involved in the war effort. Roughly 11% of all Americans fought in World War II. And since roughly half the population is male, about one in five of all U.S. males alive during the war years fought during the war years. And check out this even more mind-blowing combat stat. 46% of the entire 1939 male population in Germany either dead or seriously wounded by the war's end. Basically half, fucking half. If you knew a German dude before the war started in the 1930s, it was a coin toss for him to make it to the war alive and physically unharmed in a major way. If that dude was in his uh, 20s, prime fighting years, uh, guessing he was heavily favored to lose that coin toss. 38.8% 38.8% over 6 million of U.S. servicemen and all servicemen were volunteers. 61.2% over 11.5 million were draftees. The average duration of their service, 33 months, 73% served overseas. Upon their arrival at the training camps, inductees were stripped of the freedom and individuality they had enjoyed as civilians. They had to adapt to an entirely new way of living, one that involved routine inspections and strict military conduct, as well as rigorous physical and combat training. They were given identical haircuts, uniforms, and equipment were assigned to Spartan barracks that afforded no privacy, little room for personal possessions, to promote loyalty towards a band of brothers, to test battle readiness and toughness, U.S. draftees. And uh, you know, to fail at this was to be court-martialed for treason 
Stakes were high. They had to hold each other's balls in their mouths for no less than 60 seconds. It would always be timed with a stopwatch. And they couldn't have their eyes water at all as a sign of respect. Full fucking minute. Forget about sexual preference. That's a tricky feat of mental fortitude for anyone. Especially if your test partner has some hefty nuts. Or more challenging, hefty, stinky, hairy nuts. How unfair to end up in the stockade because your assigned partner is smuggling some kind of trouser taters that look like hippie coconuts. Some nuts looking like they'll be following the Grateful Dead a couple decades after the war in a dirty-ass van. War as hell. Sometimes getting prepared for war as hell, too. I'm done with the n- nut test bullshit now. <laughs> You're welcome for that visual of coconut-sized super hairy balls. Anyway, the training camp was the forge in which civilians began to become military men and women. In the training camps, new servicemen and women underwent rigorous physical conditioning. They were drilled in the basic elements of military life and trained to work as part of a team. Learned how to operate and maintain weapons. They took tests to determine their talents and were taught more specialized skills. Paratroopers, anti-aircraft teams, desert troops, other unique units received additional instruction at special training centers. And then it was off to war. And for so many, it was off to their deaths. Out of every 1,000, 8.6 were killed in action. Three died from other causes. 17.7 received non-fatal but often life-altering combat wounds. In total, approximately 407,000 American servicemen and women died while in service during World War II, including 292,000 battle deaths and 115,000 other deaths. All that for an average of $71 a month uh, for an enlistee and uh, 200 bucks a month for an officer. But as we know, they were fighting for something bigger than a paycheck. They were fighting for about the most noble thing you can fight for, liberty, for a world not ruled by Hitler according to his bullshit principles about superiority of the Aryan race, a world that would not be ruled by the equally ruthless Japanese emperor Hirohito. They were fighting for and often sacrificing their lives for a world where people would live in democratic societies, could make their own political choices, have the freedom to live their lives the way they wanted. As World War II veteran, Sergeant Henry C. Nelson from the United States, wrote in an essay he called So I Can Look My Children in the Face from a collection of essays published uh, as Why I Fight, prize-winning essays from the North African Theater. He wrote, Why am I fighting? Not certainly just because I was drafted. The cynical, easy retort of the half-believer. I was a draftee, yes, because circumstances prevented me from joining up when I should have liked. I envy the honor, the boys who enlisted, the boys who, seeing their country's need, acted upon it without waiting to be called or compelled. Not just because of Pearl Harbor. That's an immediate reason, yes, but Pearl Harbor or some other harbor would have come sooner or later. Indeed, might have come too late. Not to force our ideas on the rest of the world, I am fighting for the right of peoples to say how they shall be governed. If they like our form of government, fine. If not, let them have another. But let the choice be theirs, not something handed down to them by a self-styled leader or a yoke laid on them by an invader. For what exactly are we fighting? Well, it goes a long way back goes back to the taproots of America, back beyond the World War with its simple slogan of fighting to make the world safe for democracy. Back beyond 98, when we fought to set Cuba free. Back beyond the Civil War, when we fought to make and keep America a nation of free men. Back beyond 1812, when our cry was freedom of the seas. Back beyond the revolution that saw our forefathers pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor that the colonies might be freed from the yoke of the Hanoverian king. Back to the Bill of Rights. Back, back to the Magna Carta 700 years ago, the first great landmark of man's history-long effort to be politically free. Freedom of the individual to rule himself, to make his laws, to have his say in council, to set his course and follow his star. Fine words you say. But what do they have to do with fighting a Germany whose chief concern was Europe, a Japan whose ambitions were perhaps only Oriental? I say they have a lot to do with Japan and Germany. Nazism dominated in Europe and Asia would result in the emergence and ultimate dominance of the Nazi principle in American life. 
men, some not all, but alas, enough, would have looked at each other in confusion and alarm and doubt. They would have said, fearingly, democracy has failed in Europe. We thought it was the best way, but how can it be if it is so weak? Maybe the Nazis have something. Maybe, maybe. So the whispers would have started. That's why I'm fighting. I'm trying to kill fascism now before it has a chance to eat in its ugly way at the American vitals. I'm fighting because the world, like our own America, cannot exist half slave and half free. I'm fighting because I think China has a right to live as a nation, not exist as a vast puppet state. I'm fighting because I want to be able to look my children in the face someday and say to them that America wasn't afraid to fight once again for an ideal, the ideals that have made America great. I love peace, but I hate war for the shocking waste of everything that it is. But even war is preferable to supine acquiescence in international murder, not merely of the body, but of the spirit. Well, damn, Sergeant Henry C. Nelson. Hail Nimrod. Woo. Well said. Uh, the essay collection, his words were published and gave no details about him. Don't know if he survived the war. Hope he did. Hope he had those kids. Hope they knew what a bad motherfucker their, fa- their father was. Uh, feels like a good time now to get into our World War II timeline. Starting in 1918, actually, with the end of World War I. So we can peek at the events that built up to the second massive devastating war that would ravage Europe again in the first half of the 20th century. But first, so it's not too disruptive later, time for our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. 
That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around, Meat Sacks. So much more learning directly ahead. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Nineteen eighteen, the end of World War One, faced with an effective British blockade, fierce resistance from the British and French armies, the entrance of the United States Army, political unrest, starvation at home, an economy in ruins, mutiny in the navy, mounting defeats on the battlefield. Germany's generals requested armistice negotiations with the Allies in November of nineteen eighteen. Under the terms of the armistice, the German army would be allowed to remain intact and was not forced to admit defeat by surrendering. U.S. General John J. Pershing. When presented with that information, said, oh, hell no. Oh, no, no, no. I'll skull fuck those German generals. Make their families watch before I let that shit go down on my watch. He didn't say exactly that, but he did have misgivings. He said it would be better to have the German generals admit defeat so there could be no doubt. But the French and British were convinced that Germany would not be a threat again. Oh, boy. This failure to force the German general staff to admit defeat would have a huge impact on the future of Germany. It would allow Hitler to claim that the German army had never been defeated, that it was a Western plot to suppress Germany. Related to this, the German general staff also would support the false idea that the army had not been defeated on the battlefield, but could have been fought uh, on to victory, or excuse me, could have fought on to victory if they had not been betrayed at home. The infamous stab them in the back or stab in the back theory. 
The stab in the back theory would become hugely popular among many Germans who found it impossible to swallow defeat. And who stabbed Germany in the back according to this theory? Well, of course, mostly the Jews. And what was this theory based on? Nothing real. The German army uh, ran out of troops. Once the U.S. entered the war, Germany had zero chance of fighting on to victory. That was the reality. But power-hungry dictator types, uh, you know, don't often like to live in, uh, the, in reality. They like to invent their own realities. Uh, young Adolf Hitler became obsessed with the stab in the back theory. Also uh, to Hitler and so many others, the German politicians who signed the armistice on November 11th, 1918, would become known as the November criminals, traitors to Germany. Another big event that would lead even more directly into World War II was just around the corner, signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, when Germany had uh, signed the armistice back in November of 1918, they were led to believe that they were signing a peace without victory, an agreement that ended the war without declaring a victor and a loser. This was according to U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's vision. In Wilson's vision of the post-war world, all nations, not just the losers, would reduce their armed forces, preserve the freedom of the seas, and join an international peacekeeping organization called the League of Nations. It was a nice thought. Uh, but France, which had been decimated by Germany as well as Britain, wanted to make Germany fucking pay, literally, for all the death, all the destruction reaped upon their nations. They sowed some economic vengeance into the complex negotiations that created the Treaty of Versailles. On June 28, 1919, the leaders of the Allied and Associated Powers, as well as representatives from Germany, gathered in the Hall of Mirrors uh, at the Palace of Versailles to sign the final treaty. The Versailles Treaty forced Germany to give up territory to Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, return Alsace and Lorraine to France and cede all of its overseas colonies in China, uh, the Pacific and Africa to the allied nations. And those motherfuckers now had to drastically reduce their armed forces and accept the demilitarization and allied occupation of the region around the Rhine River. And still not done. Article 231 of the treaty went against the earlier armistice and now placed not just all the blame for inciting the war squarely on Germany's shoulders, but also insisted it pay several billion in reparations to the allied nations. Right? JK Germany, it was your fucking fault. Now give us everything you have left or be destroyed. Uh, this all would later become a big talking point uh, for Hitler. Right? Rallying support of Germans who believed they'd been treated badly under the treaty's terms, and they had been, and who was really behind the Versailles Treaty in Hitler's mind, well, of course, the Jews. Right? Always the Jews with Hitler. It felt like he blamed them for literally everything that went wrong in his life. Why, why is this yolk so runny? I clearly ordered the overhard eggs. Ah, the Jews. The Jews are behind this. I woke up last night with the worst cramp in my calf muscle. Such a bad Charlie horse. Why? I eat plenty of bananas. I drink plenty of water. The Jews. The Jews cramped my calf muscle. Where did I set my car keys? I was certain I left them in the bowl that Himmler bought for me for my birthday. I know I set them right there. The Jews. The Jews hid my car keys. They also took the last pieces of the toilet paper in my bathroom and did not replace the roll. The Jews, the Jews take my toilet paper all the time. Uh, speaking of Hitler, uh, on July 21st, 1921, Adolf Hitler became the leader of Germany's national socialist policy. We covered Hitler's rise to power several times over now, uh, most recently in our Holocaust two-part series. As a brief refresher, Hitler and other patriotic, quote-unquote, Germans were outraged and humiliated by the harsh terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which the Allies compelled uh, the new German Republic, the Weimar Republic, to accept along with an obligation to pay $33 billion in war reparations. To add insult to injury, like we mentioned, Germany had to give up its prized overseas colonies, territory in Europe, downsize its army. Paying the crushing reparations destabilized the economy, producing ruinous runaway inflation, 
By September of 1923, 4 billion German marks had the equal value of $1. One American dollar. Yes. USA. USA. Uh, consumers literally needed a wheelbarrow to carry enough paper money to buy a loaf of bread. And that is a fucking terrifying reality for people to go through. Hitler blamed the Weimar Republic's weakness on the influence of Germany's Jewish and communist minorities who he claimed were trying to take over the country. They weren't. Yet, there are only two possibilities, he told a Munich audience in 1922. Either victory of the Aryan or annihilation of the Aryan and victory of the Jew. Uh-huh. Create that boogeyman. Create that fucking scapegoat. Instill fear in the scared and too often ignorant masses. Give them a common enemy to point to. Right, the root of all their problems, in this case, Azajus, classic propaganda technique that works far too easily and far too often. By 1921, the new Nazi party had a newspaper, an official flag, a private army, the SA, Hitler stormtroopers, made up largely of unemployed and disenchanted World War I veterans. By 1923, the SA had grown to 15,000 men, and they had access to hidden stores of weapons forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles. By 1932, the Nazis had grown to become the largest political party in the Reichstag. Uh, Reichstag? Uh, Germany's parliament at that time, Hitler would be appointed chancellor of Germany in 1933 following a series of electoral victories by the Nazi party. Upon achieving power, Hitler smashed the nation's democratic institutions, gave himself supreme authority, staging false flag operations and pushing out propaganda that made the German people believe he was their savior. Cult, cult, cult. The worst kind of cult leader, the political kind, takes over a nation. Beware any and all politicians who lean hard on the boogeyman game and spend more time talking about whose fault shit is instead of introducing helpful programs and solutions. That takes a much uh, smarter mind. Uh, Hitler wasn't the only cult leader like politician on his way to becoming a fascist dictator in Europe. Another fuckhead, uh, Benicio Del Toro, long before he showed up in the usual suspects, Sicario and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was teaming up with future Hall of Fame quarterback fucking Dan Marino to take over Italy. Uh, no, 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 that's, uh, no, not, uh, sorry, not Benicio Del Toro. That's, uh, Benito, Benito Mussolini. He didn't star in any fun movies. Mussolini did not become a dictator overnight, but the speech he gave to the Italian parliament on January 3rd, 1925, asserted his right to supreme power. Uh, that's seen uh, generally as the effective date that Mussolini declared himself dictator of Italy. So who was Benito Mussolini? I feel like he often gets left out of a lot of World War II historical discussions. Not going to spend a lot of time on his story. He should be his own suck subject someday. But here's a quick summary of that dipshit. Born on July 29th, 1883 in Verano de Costa, Italy. Uh, Mussolini was the son of a blacksmith and ardent socialist. Alessandro Mussolini. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, love, I love saying Italian words many more than any other language's words. Spanish and Italian words are my favorite. Uh, and you know, uh, son of a devout Catholic mother, Rosa Matone. <laughs> uh, it's, it comes from a loving place. Italian listeners, young Mussolini was expelled from his first boarding school at the age of 10 for stabbing a fellow student 14. He stabbed another student and got suspended. Clearly he was a very rational and stable kid who should have been put in charge of a nation. Uh, much of Mussolini's early adulthood was spent traveling around Switzerland, getting involved with that country's socialist party, clashing with police. He'd become the editor of two socialist newspapers, write his own autobiography while in prison for his activities during his youth. Beware of the person who writes an autobiography when they're young, too. Uh, I read you an expert uh, of it, but it fucking sucks. Pretty boring from what I've seen. Mussolini uh, split from the Socialist Party in 1914, starting his own newspaper. The former stab-happy kid, not surprisingly, encouraged violence from supporters as unrest spread across the country. In 1915, Mussolini joined the Italian army in World War I. Fought on the front lines, obtained the rank of corporal before being discharged for being wounded. 
Mussolini returned to newspapers by 1918, called for a dictator to seize control of Italy. Pressure from Mussolini and his uh, followers forced the government to order the internment of foreigners they considered enemies. Like Hitler, after the Treaty of Versailles 1919, his dissatisfaction with it, Mussolini gathered various fascist groups into a national organization called uh, Fasci Itali- Italiani del Combattimento. Sometimes I feel like if I speak real fast, I can cover for mispronunciations. By the end of the year, Mussolini stood in the general election as the fascist candidate, but lost in a socialist sweep. Two days later, Mussolini was arrested for allegedly collecting arms to overthrow the government. Didn't take his loss well. Uh, was released without charge the next day. Not a good call. In 1921, the Italian king, Victor Emmanuel III, dissolved parliament amidst growing violence and chaos in the nation. Elections that year now brought a huge win for the fascists. Mussolini took a seat as a deputy in parliament. Party changed its name to Partito Nacional Fascista. Uh, 1922, fascists were instructed to wear uniforms, including cool-ass black shirts to make them look brooding. Uh, they were, you know, dressed up uh, in ways modeled after Roman army groups. All party members are considered squad members. Soon after, several Italian cities were seized by fascist squads who burned down communist and socialist offices. In October of 1922, Mussolini threatened to march on Rome to take control of the government through violent force, if not handed over. The government was slow to act, eventually dispatching troops, though fascists had already seized control of some local governments. Uh, refusing to pass martial law, King Victor Emmanuel watched as thousands of armed fascists entered Rome then dissolved the government, asked Mussolini to form a new one. Mussolini became prime minister as well as minister of the interior and a minister for foreign affairs. Why would a king do that? Let uh, Mussolini march. Uh, historians say that, you know, the king could have stopped him, could have had him killed. But the king was tired of the recurring crises of the parliamentary government ever since the end of World War I. And he actually welcomed Mussolini as a strong man who imposed order on Italy, secretly invited him to march on Rome, a little bit of political theater. Uh, mirroring what would happen in Germany, Mussolini's first act as prime minister was to demand special emergency powers, allowing him to rig elections in the fascist favor. Okay, good. Moving in a good direction. Soon after, the Italian parliament made suspicion of being anti-fascist, punishable by imprisonment without trial. Okay, good, good. Uh, ordered any cost, including freedom. Uh, 1926, the fascists created a youth group called the Opera Nacional Balila or Balia pressuring children to join the Catholic Boy Scouts dissolved formation of any other youth groups, not part of fascism was now illegal, right? Brainwashed that next generation. Hitler did the same thing in Germany. Same year, all communist members of parliament were arrested. Didn't commit crimes, just arrested for being communist. Uh, socialist members all expelled. Anyone who could not be uh, prosecuted for a crime was detained for up to five years and placed in an in island internment camps. Cinemas now required to screen government propaganda in the form of newsreels. Fascists owned two-thirds of the newspapers, controlled reporting, issuing daily editorial guidelines, threatening editors with arrest and, you know, death, I'm sure, if they dissented. Beware of any and all politicians who try and take over the media or destroy free press. Fuck anyone who does that. Never leads anywhere good. Uh, Now let's focus on another major player in this conflict. Roy motherfucking Disney, Hitler's American puppet. Roy Disney would betray America greatly and secretly funnel billions of Mickey Mouse dollars in war aid to the Nazis in the years leading up to and during World War II. Why? The Jews. He wanted to eradicate what he called, and I quote, the Jewish problem. No one was more violent racist than that mom-killing piece of shit. Never forget the true evil that is and will always be Roy Disney. Many think he's still alive, having for many years now lived under the fake identity of game show host Pat Sajak. Da-da-da! Don't worry about any of that if you're not familiar with that stupid ongoing gag. No time to explain. But I am kidding, Disney lawyers. When I said Roy Disney, I meant to say Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
the man who would be elected president of the United States on November 8th, 1932. The only president elected to the office four times, uh, Roosevelt led the U.S. through the through two of the greatest crises of the 20th century, the Great Depression and World War II. He would take over running the nation at one of America's lowest points. By his inauguration day, March 4th, 1933, most banks had shut down. Industrial production had fallen to just 56% of its 1929 level. At least 13 million former wage earners were unemployed and millions of farmers across America were in desperate straits. Much of his first term will be focused on alleviating these economic issues and we'll catch up with him a bit later. On October 13th, 1933, Germany leaves the League of Nations. Hitler didn't care for its whole, "Eh, let's give peace a chance vibe. Hitler, who had become Germany's chancellor on January 30th, 1933, is making moves away from the Treaty of Versailles, secretly building up a new and more powerful army. On August 2nd, 1934, German President Hindenburg dies. The last man on earth who kind of, sort of, a little teeny bit held Hitler in check. Uh, Just two weeks later, on August 9th, Hitler becomes Fuhrer of Germany, all-powerful, of course. March 16th, 1935, Hitler openly violates the Treaty of Versailles by introducing military conscription, beefing up his army, a.k.a. exactly what the Treaty of Versailles had forbidden. Other world powers, not liking this. A lot of strong condemnations are spouted, but no one actually does anything to try and stop the might Hitler is developing. March, They're still reeling for World War I in many ways. March 7th, 1936, German troops occupy the Rhineland. Once again, that was forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles. After World War I, the Treaty of Versailles not only restored Alsace-Lorraine to France, but also allowed Allied troops to occupy portions of the right and left banks of the German Rhineland for about 5 to 15 years. Moreover, the German left bank and a right bank stripped 30 miles deep were to be permanently demilitarized. Despite Germany's occupation of the Rhineland now and the flagrant disregard for the Treaty of Versailles, France and Britain, other world powers, do nothing more than condemn them. Uh, protracted international negoci- negotiations failed to undo the German remilitarization of the Rhineland and the passive attitude of the Western powers gave Hitler the heads up that he was not going to be facing blowback anytime soon. So he continued to push the, uh, we're about to go uh, to war with you motherfuckers again envelope. May 9th, 1936, Mussolini's Italian forces take Ethiopia. Why? Because Italy had been trying to take it over uh, since the 1890s, making a colony of Italy, establish themselves as a new colonial power. This new takeover was a prestige move for Mussolini. It was about building Italian morale. We are powerful, right? We're a colonial player. Wanted to, wanted to build up his legend about being someone who would restore Italy to the glory it once enjoyed when it was the heart of the Roman Empire. Also in 1936, Hitler and Mussolini side with Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War in 1936 with Mussolini providing Franco with 50,000 troops. Dictators supporting dictators. On October 25th, 1936, Germany and Italy complete the Rome-Berlin Axis, a cooperation deal. A month later, Japan joins these so-called Axis powers by signing with Germany the Anti-Comintern uh, Pact, an anti-communist agreement that was primarily directed against the Soviet Union. Italy uh, signed as well in 1937. More and more moves being made to prepare for a massive war. September 29th, 1938, Germany, Italy, Great Britain, France now all signed the Munich Agreement, which forces the Czechoslovakian Republic to cede the Sudetenland, including key Czechoslovakian military defense positions, to Nazi Germany. Why would they fucking do this? Why give in to Hitler? It was uh, appeasement to, to hope that he wouldn't do anything worse. The leaders of France and Great Britain, especially British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, hoped to avoid a costly war with Hitler by letting him have his precious Sudetenland. But that wouldn't happen. Regarding this move, future British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, I've heard of him, uh, said of Chamberlain, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war. It's a great fucking quote. And also, uh, ouch, 
Strong words. Uh, meanwhile, with Europe seeming like war might be inevitable now, Franklin Roosevelt uh, decides to go ahead, expand a civilian pilot training program in the U.S. amongst other preparation moves. March 31st, 1939, France and Great Britain guarantee the integrity of the borders of the Polish state now, but also may have had their fingers crossed behind their backs when they did so. From April 7th to April 15th, fascist Italy invades and annexes Albania. Who comes to their aid? Not the League of Nations, right? The first worldwide intergovernment, intergovernmental organization whose principal mission was to maintain world peace. Uh, they proved themselves very ineffective in stopping the growing wave of aggressive fascism in Europe. No one helped Albania, just like no one came to Ethiopia's aid. Mussolini wanted Albania for numerous reasons. The big one was that they were once part of the Roman Empire. Again, he's going to rebuild the Roman Empire. From June 27th to July 6th, 1939, the British Ministry of Information designs the now iconic Keep Calm and Carry On posters. I wonder where the fuck that came from. Uh, it was produced as one of the three home publicity posters. The others read, Your Courage, Your Cheerfulness, Your Resolution Will Bring Us Victory. Not as catchy. And the final one was, Freedom is in Peril, Defend it with All Your Might. Pretty good, but not as good as Keep Calm. Keep Calm intended to be distributed to strengthen morale in the event of a wartime disaster, such as a mass bombing of major cities using high explosives and poison gas, which was widely expected within hours of an outbreak of war. Fear of the Germans is on British, uh, you know, British people's minds. Uh, it's on the minds of everyone in Europe and many places around the world. But again, no one in charge is militarily standing up to Hitler or Mussolini, not yet. August of 1939, the Russians and the Germans sign a non-aggression pact Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, two of the nicest, most laid back people anyone has ever met, agreed not to invade each other's borders. Probably had their fingers crossed behind their backs when they did that. The two leaders also secretly planned to divide Poland up and other parts of Eastern Europe, uh, you know, divide them up between them. This agreement will void Germany's pact with Italy and Japan against alliances with communist countries. And Hitler didn't give a fuck. He didn't actually care about Italy or Japan. It was just beneficial to use them at that time to aid his expansionist agenda. World War II nearly here now. Who was the first victim of a war that was to claim more than 46 million victims? Possibly many, many more than that. Martin Gilbert. There's yeah, so many numbers from various from source to source. Martin Gilbert, author of the Second World War, A Complete History, argues that the first victim was an unknown prisoner in one of Adolf Hitler's concentration camps. Probably a common criminal. In an attempt to make Germany seem like the innocent victim of Polish aggression, he was dressed in a Polish uniform, taken to the German frontier town of Gleiwitz, shot on the evening of August 31st, 1939 by the Gestapo in a bizarre faked Polish attack on the local radio station. The bodies of several concentration camp victims were used in that operation, all dressed in Polish uniforms. A false flag operation, Operation Himmler. On the following morning, as German troops began their advance into Poland, Hitler gave, as one of his reasons for the invasion, the attack by regular Polish troops on the Gleiwitz transmitter. 24 hours after the German attack on Poland, an official Polish government communique reported that 130 Polish uh, you know, people, of whom 12 were soldiers, had been killed in air raids on Warsaw, uh, Dinya, and several other Polish towns. Two German bombers were shot down and the four occupants arrested after a miraculous escape, the communique noted, when 41 German aircraft in formation appeared on eastern Warsaw on Friday afternoon. People watched a thrilling aerial battle over the heart of the city. Several houses caught fire. A hospital for Jewish children was bombed and wrecked. Of course it was. Of course that was one of Hitler's targets. Now employing the Blitzkrieg lightning war tactics I mentioned earlier, Germany invades Poland. At the heart of these Blitzkriegs, Nazi panzer tanks, the Panzer IV, could go up to 26 miles per hour on a road, could sustain an off-road speed of 10 miles an hour. Over 8,500 of this model were used in World War II by the Nazis. Almost 6,000 Panzer III's were built. 
an armored corps composed of 1,445 Panzer 1s, 1,223 Panzer 2s, 98 Panzer 3s, and 211 Panzer 4s invaded Poland on September 1st. So many tanks, and the Polish had no answer for them. Their only defense, crude slingshots that they generally fired chicken eggs at the Nazis with. According to ancient Polish superstition, chicken egg yolks, if fired by wizards, if they can touch the face of an enemy, will give the wizard control of the enemy's souls. Thousands of Polish wizards, armed with only robes, staffs, slingshots, and lots of eggs, were butchered by the thousands. <laughs> Sorry, I really wanted to not say something stupid about Poland. I've established over the years now that they have a long, brave, noble history. People do a lot of ass-kicking, but it's just been a long time since I made up a crazy lie about them. I'm done now. Uh, Polish military forces were unprepared for the ferocity of Germany's attack. They did not have comparable equipment. They had a lot more than eggs. Uh, they had about a million soldiers in 1939, but they hadn't been readying themselves for war like Hitler had been readying his troops. They couldn't match them, right? They were just outgunned. Uh, no one was uh, ready when the war was started. When efforts to negotiate a withdrawal failed, Britain and France declared war on Germany. World War II has now begun. Over the following five weeks, roughly 66,000 Polish soldiers were killed, another 133,700 wounded, uh, roughly 675,000 more are captured. When World War II broke out in Europe in September of 1939, U.S. President FDR called Congress into a special session to revise previously passed neutrality acts to permit belligerents, that is Britain and France, to be able to buy American arms on a cash and carry basis. And he did that over the objection of isolationists who wanted nothing to do with the war. Uh, September, on the morning of September 2nd, German aircraft bombed the railway station in the small town of Kolo in Poland. At the station stood a train of civilian refugees being evacuated from some border towns. 111 are killed. Whole villages are now burned to the ground. September 3rd, uh, 55 Polish peasants rounded up and shot in one Polish village, child of two amongst them. In another, 20 Jews are ordered to assemble in the marketplace. Among them, Israel Louis, man of 64, uh, or Louis, uh, when his daughter ran up to her father, a German told her to open her mouth for impudence and then fired a bullet into it. Right? She fell down dead. 20 Jews were executed. Some new sheriffs are in town and they are fucking evil. In the weeks that follow, such atrocities become commonplace, widespread on an unprecedented scale. While soldiers fight in battle, civilians are being massacred behind enemy lines. On the afternoon of September 3rd, German bombers attack an undefended Polish town where a peacetime population of 6,500 Poles and Polish Jews were swelled by a further 3,000 refugees. Within moments, the center of town's on fire. As thousands hurried for safety towards nearby woods, German planes flying uh, low just opened fire on them with their machine guns. One young boy, a survivor of the attack, Ben Helfgott, later recalled, as we were running to the woods, people were falling. People were on fire. That night, the sky was red from the burning town. Also on September 3rd, Britain and France both declare war on Germany. Uh, Hitler not quite, sorry, I already said they declared war, but yeah, Hitler not quite ready to fight them yet, though. Not quite. Hitler's, uh, first I must defeat the Jews in Poland. I wandered around talking to people for over four hours yesterday with a bug on my nose that everyone could see. It was a green bug. I don't have green buggers. So who put it there? The Jews. I have a strong feeling that the Jew from Poland put the bug on my nose and they must be dealt with. Uh, Hitler really did want to handle Poland first. He told his commanders, the immediate aim of the German high command remains the rapid and victorious conclusion of operation against Poland. But then at nine o'clock that evening, German submarine, the U-30, commanded by Julius Lemp, torpedoed the British passenger liner Athenia, which it had mistaken for an armed ship. The Athenia was bound for Montreal from Liverpool. It had sailed before Britain's declaration of war with over 1,100 passengers on board. Of the 112 passengers who lost their lives that night, 28 were citizens of the U.S. 
despite American deaths, Franklin Roosevelt still not ready to, uh, to you know, throw a nation still reeling from the Great Depression, World War One, into the fray. He was emphatic when he broadcast to the American people on September 3rd, let no man or woman thoughtlessly or falsely or falsely talk of America sending its armies to European fields. At this moment, there is being prepared a proclamation of American neutrality. The American people, many of whom had lost sons, brothers, friends, lovers, husbands in World War I had zero fucking desire to join another massive war across the pond, especially while still in the devastating economic throes of the Great Depression. The war's longest continuous campaign also would begin this September. The Allies, minus the U.S., who had not entered the war yet, strike a naval blockade against Germany and begin a struggle for control of the Atlantic, uh, control for sea routes that would last for almost the entirety of the war. The Nazis, with their U-boats, respond with a counter-blockade that is at first successful, but the Allies' use of convoys, aircraft, and technology eventually turn the tide against them. Over five years, thousands of ships engage in over 100 battles in the Atlantic Ocean. Over 100,000 lives will be lost. Then on September 17, 1939, the Soviet Union invades Poland from the east. The Polish government flees into exile via Romania. Poland got fucked in this war. Uh, the Polish government flees, uh, you know, uh, via Romania, first to France, then later to Great Britain. Warsaw surrenders September 27th. Over the following two days, Germany and the Soviet Union divide Poland between them, just like they'd planned. And then Russia, between November 30th, 1939 and March 12th, 1940, fights Finland in the so-called Winter War. We talked about this war in the, I still can't say his name, Simo Haya? Uh, sniper Suck, the White Death. Crazy-ass story of heroism. Uh, the Finns end up ceding the northern shores of Lake Lagoda to the Soviet Union, the small Finnish coastline along the Arctic Sea, after fighting off the much larger Russian army for months. The League of Nations banishes Russia for this attack, and Stalin doesn't give a fuck. The Soviet Union, Germany, and Italy. Now, three nations led by three dictators, fucking up all kinds of shit in Eastern Europe and Northern Africa. And almost nothing yet being done to stop them, despite some declarations of war. Uh, from April 9th to June 9th, Germany invades Denmark and Norway. Denmark surrenders on the day of the attack. Norway holds out until June 9th. The Nazis then continue their takeover of much of Europe. In May of 1940, Germany marched into Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. In the early morning darkness of May 10th, the Germans unleashed their blitzkrieg against the Netherlands and Belgium. The attack sends the defending troops reeling, right? Nazi confidence is through the roof. They keep encountering militaries ill-equipped to defend themselves against them. They don't give a shit about committing war crimes left and right either, which gives them a huge military advantage, right? They can be reckless. They can do whatever it takes to win. No thoughts to uh, any real sort of morality. The roads to meet the Nazi attack from Western Europe are overflowing with refugees fleeing the front. French and British troops now rushing to the rescue, caught in the headlong retreat and actually pushed back because of it. German dive bombers fill the sky, strafing a retreating mix of civilians and soldiers with machine guns and bombs. Again, they don't give a shit. When by any means necessary, foreign militaries aren't German, neither are their civilians, so fuck them all. It's a brutal war. The Allies fight valiantly but in vain. The growing German war machine advances virtually unperturbed. German General Erwin Rommel who will later gain fame fighting in the African desert as the Desert Fox leads the 7th Panzer Division as it crashes through Belgian defenses and on into France. He will push the British back hundreds of miles. He'll defy Hitler's orders and live. <clears throat> he was pressured to commit suicide by Hitler uh, later in the war and did because of maybe being part of a plot to depose Hitler in 1944. We can do a whole suck on the Desert Fox. Right now, those fast tanks of the Nazis, he's a master of. The rest of Europe just not ready for them. Rommel kept a journal of his experiences. In this excerpt, he describes uh, the action on May 14th as he leads a tank attack against French forces near the Meuse River on the Belgian border. I was very tempted to add some German polka music behind this excerpt, but it's so distracting. And I think it's important to understand how these blitzkriegs worked. He wrote, 
Rothenberg, a subordinate tank commander, now drove off through a hollow to the left with the five tanks which were to accompany the infantry, thus giving these tanks a lead of 100 to 150 yards. There was no sound of enemy fire. Some 20 to 30 tanks followed up behind, and the commander of the five tanks reached the rifle company on the southern edge of Anye Wood. Colonel Rothenberg moved off with his leading tanks along the edge of the wood going west. We had just reached the southwest corner of the wood and were about to cross a low plantation from which we could see the five tanks escorting the infantry below us to our left front when suddenly we came under heavy artillery and anti-tank gunfire from the west. Shells landed all around us and my tank received two hits, one after the other, the first on the upper edge of the turret and the second in the periscope. The driver promptly opened the throttle wide and drove straight into the nearest bushes. He had only gone a few yards, however, when the tank slid down a steep slope on the western edge of the wood and finally stopped, canted over on its side in such a position that the enemy, whose guns were in a position about 500 yards away on the edge of the next wood, could not fail to see it. I had been wounded in the right cheek by a small splinter from the shell, which had landed in the periscope. It was not serious, uh, though it bled a great deal. The French battery now opened rapid fire on our wood, and at any moment, we could expect their fire to be aimed at our tank, which was in full view. I therefore decided to abandon it as fast as I could, taking the crew with me. At that moment, the uh, subaltern in command of the tanks escorting the infantry reported himself wounded. With the words, uh, Herr General, my left arm has been shot off. <laughs> Jesus. The way this was written, like no exclamation point even, I just made me imagine this dude like saying that in like a weirdly calm manner. Actually, just a, just a real matter of fact. Uh, Herr General, I would love to do as you command, but I'm struggling with a bit of all of the blood leaving my body as my left arm has been completely shot off. Apologies, Herr General. I will do my best not to distract you and try to die quietly. I don't know why I decided to do a weird accent with that guy's voice. It was not German. I don't know what it was. Uh, Rommel continues. Uh, We clambered up through the sandy pit, shells crashing and splintering all around. Close in front of us, trundled Rothenberg's tank with flames pouring out the rear. The adjutant adjutant of the Panzer Regiment had also left his tank. I thought at first that the command tank had been set alight by a hit in petrol tank and was extremely worried for Colonel Rothenberg's safety. However, it turned out to be only the smoke candles that had caught light, the smoke from which now served us very well. In the meantime, Lieutenant Most had driven my armored vehicle's vehicle into the wood where it had been hit in the engine and now stood immobilized. The crew was unhurt. Yeah, except for that dude who had his fucking arm shot off. Uh, I guess he wasn't part of Rommel's crew. Two days later, Rommel and his forces raced behind and parallel to the Maginot Line, a line of concrete fortifications, obstacles, and weapon installations built by France in the 30s to deter invasion by Germany and force them to move around the fortifications and then turn north to attack the fortifications from behind. This was his description of that. He said, The people in the houses were rudely awoken by the din of our tanks, the clatter and roar of tracks and engines. Troops lay bivouacked beside the road. Military vehicles stood parked in farmyards and in some places on the road itself. Civilians and French troops, their faces distorted with terror, lay huddled in the ditches, alongside hedges and in every hollow beside the road. We passed refuge columns, uh, refugee columns, excuse me, the carts abandoned by their owners who had fled in panic into the fields. On we went at a steady speed towards our objective. Every so often, a quick glance at the map by a shaded light and short wireless message to divisional headquarters to report the position and thus the success of the 25th Panzer Regiment. Every so often, a look out of the hatch to assure myself that there was still no resistance and the contact and the contact was being maintained to the rear. The flat countryside lay spread out around us under the cold light of the moon. 
We were through the Maginot line. It was hardly conceivable. 22 years before, we had stood for four and a half long years before this self-same enemy and had won victory after victory and yet finally lost the war. And now we had broken through the renowned Maginot line and were diving deep into enemy territory. Driving. It was just not a beautiful dream. It was reality. So these Panzer tank divisions, to illustrate how game-changing they were, uh, let me also read an excerpt from the World War II Museum in New Orleans website, beautifully written. It says, Hollywood Westerns often feature a stock scene where the new gang rides into town. They're armed, they're mounted, and they're mean. It's high noon on Main Street. Cowards flee. Mothers hurriedly grab their children. And the sheriff desperately tries to round up a few good men. World War II was no movie, but the first two years of the war followed the above script precisely. A new gang did indeed ride into town. Grim riders eager for vengeance. They swept all before them, raiding and pillaging, humiliating the local authorities, and shooting down anyone who got in their way. The new gang had a name, the Panzer Division, a mechanized formation formed around a hard core of swiftly moving tanks. Surrounded by vehicles of all sorts to perform the reconnaissance, carry the infantry and drag the guns, the Panzer Division brought the concept of sustained mobility to modern warfare. Such a formation could travel 50 miles or more per day and then repeat the process day after day out to the limit of its logistical network. Sustained mobility was a game changer of 20th century warfare. For all of human history, armies had based their doctrines and training regimens on the, pe- on the pace of the foot soldier. Horse cavalry played a role in military operations, carrying out reconnaissance and seizing favorable terrain, but they did not set the tempo. Even well-trained infantry could usually make no more than 15 to 20 miles per day, with frequent days off in between the heavier marches. Few officers would have considered these distances to be a limitation. It was just the way things were on campaign. Their men walked to work, and so by and large did they. And now suddenly it all changed. Commanders who could tick off the precise number of marches from Arras to uh, Amiens or Berlin to Bomberg from memory suddenly had to relearn the entire playbook with a completely new set of maneuvers and formations. The new battle tempo was brutally quick and thus even more unforgiving of errors. Add in the third dimension with the attacks now coming from the sky as well as the ground and the complexity of battle, the infamous fog of war had multiplied tenfold overnight. In the opening battles of World War II, German panzer divisions ran over, through and around every defensive position in their way. They restored mobility and maneuver to the modern battlefield, and in so doing, they proved that war could consist of more than launching bloody frontal assaults by mass infantry. They proved that armies could still win decisive victories a la Napoleon, a prospect that seemed out of reach to most military experts of the day. The new riders shocked the world, and they reshaped the face of battle. So again, their foes just didn't know what fucking hit them early on in the war. They had no answers for these tanks. No, uh, you know, no one had ever fought uh, an equivalent weapon before. In response to the invasion of France, Winston Churchill replaces a disgraced Neville Chamberlain as prime minister. Neville Chamberlain, again, was the man responsible for the appeasement of Hitler, a policy that basically said, as long as he's not coming for us, you know, he's fine. No need to worry over here. Uh, Hitler would soon come for Great Britain and test Churchill's leadership, unlike he had ever tested Chamberlain's going to suck Churchill someday. For now, just a blitzkrieg skeleton of a summary of his ascent to leading Britain. Churchill was born in 1874, son of Lord Randolph Churchill and his American wife, Jenny Jerome. Uh, through his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, the meteoric Tory politician, 
Uh, he was directly descended from John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, hero of the wars against Louis XIV of France in the early 18th century. So maybe heroism was in his blood. His mother, Jenny, such an American name, I love it, uh, daughter of a New York financier and the horse racing enthusiast, Leonard Jerome, after a brief but eventful career in the army during which he traveled the world and wrote several books. Churchill became a conservative member of parliament in 1900. Not immediately successful as a politician, though. He could be arrogant, though his boyish charm usually diminished that effect on people. Uh, more importantly, he had a speech impediment he never truly lost. Another mush mouth. I like it. Uh, Churchill didn't just uh, tow party lines like when the conservatives advocated a trade tariff and Churchill, who was very pro-free market, decided to change sides. Uh, he'd worked so hard doing things like ensuring eight-hour day maximums for minors, fixing minimum wages that conservative Tories thought of him as a traitor to his class. Need more politicians like Churchill in the States today. People not afraid to stand up for what they believe in, even when it goes against, especially when it goes against their party's current stance. Churchill would leave politics during World War I, uh, briefly becoming an active service member, and then complicated uh, political maneuverings, mostly by the anti-Churchill Tory government, forced him into a large administrative role in the post-World War I years. He'd be in and out of office from 1922 to 1929 and 1931 when the national government was formed. Churchill, though a supporter, had no hand in its establishment or place in its councils. He'd arrived at a point where, for all his abilities, he was distrusted by every party. However, he was built for war, right, wartime, an intense patriot, a romantic believer in his country's greatness and its historic role in Europe, a devotee of action who thrived on challenge and crisis, not squabbling in times of luxury, a student, historian, and veteran of war, a man who seemed to have an infinite supply of concentration and energy. When Neville Chamberlain became prime minister, Churchill repeatedly warned about the danger Germany posed. Repeatedly, the accuracy of Churchill's information on Germany's aggressive plans and progress was confirmed by events. Repeatedly, his warnings were ignored. But by March of 1939, people were paying attention. The average Brit was recognizing him as the nation's real spokesperson, and people started calling for him to return to office. Chamberlain, however, ignored him. But then on September 3rd, 1939, the day Britain declared war on Germany, Chamberlain appointed Churchill to a post in charge of the Admiralty, a post he'd held many years before. The signal went out to the fleet. Winston is back. Uh, boys are back in town. Uh, a week later, Winston would get a congratulatory note from Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, shortly thereafter, the German invasion of the Low Countries on May 10th, 1940, acted as the final blow against Chamberlain's career. Luxembourg occupied May 10th. Netherlands surrendered May 14th. Belgium surrendered May 28th. Britain couldn't act like the Nazis weren't coming for them any longer. And Chamberlain resigned. A coalition government took over that included members from the entire political spectrum, uh, except from the far left and far right. Uh, it was headed by a war cabinet of five with Churchill taking over the leadership of the House of Commons and the Ministry of Defense and as prime minister. Churchill would face the House of Commons for the first time on, as prime minister May 13th, 1940. And he warned members of a hard road ahead, saying, We are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. That we are in action at many points in Norway and in Holland. That we have to be prepared in the Mediterranean. That the air battle is continuous. And that many preparations have to be made here at home. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. If you ask what is our policy, I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. 
Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Hell fucking Nimrod, man. Chamberlain. He was a wordsmith. Dude knew how to rally his people during hard times. Uh, Historians widely attribute Churchill with being the greatest statesman of the 20th century, largely for his ability to inspire with words like those. Also wish we had a politician that charismatic today here in the States. Uh, In this speech, he asked the House to declare its confidence in its government. The motion passed unanimously. Not only was Churchill rallying the country and boosting morale, he was also going out of his way to say that political division would not be tolerated. Not now. For Britain in the fight against the Nazis, there were the Nazis and there was everyone else. Anyone who shared the goal of taking down the Nazis was an ally, even a communist. Within a couple of weeks of Churchill's rise to power, Parliament passed legislation placing all persons, their services, and their property at the disposal of the crown, granting the government, in effect, the most sweeping emergency powers in modern British history. Dangerous game to play, but one, sadly, that was necessary to defeat Hitler and his fellow power-hungry tyrants. Excuse me, from May 26 to June 4, 1940, the British Expeditionary Force and other Allied troops evacuate from the French seaport of Dunkirk, where around 350,000 troops were stranded. The Germans had cut off communications between troops originally hoping to stop the Nazi advance into France in both the North and the South. It seemed for a time that there was the real chance that the Nazis were going to be able to butcher and or capture all of these cornered troops. The Belgians called for a ceasefire. The British government decided to evacuate the troops by sea, but then Germans knocked out their port facilities. The British needed to improvise and quickly before being overwhelmed by advancing Nazi forces. On the first day, only 7,669 Allied soldiers were evacuated. But by the end of the eighth day, 338,226 had been rescued by a hastily assembled fleet of over 800 largely private fishing vessels. Most of their equipment had to be left behind, though. Churchill said of this evacuation deemed as miraculous by many, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. Following this evacuation, France was left virtually undefended. On June 4th, Germany, uh, June 14th, excuse me, Germany captures Paris and France surrenders to the Nazis. That morning, Parisians awoke to the sound of a German-accented voice announcing via loudspeaker that a curfew was being imposed for 8 p.m. that evening as German troops entered and occupied Paris. Imagine hearing something like that today. You know, just attention. Russian forces will be entering the city shortly. Be inside your homes by 8 Remain there until daylight the following morning at daybreak. Anyone not obeying this curfew will be arrested or shot. Uh, Winston Churchill had tried for days to convince the French government to hang on, sue for, to not sue for peace, right? Telling them that America was coming. You know, uh, French Premier Paul Renou telegrammed President Franklin Roosevelt asking for such aid, declaration of war, or at least, you know, uh, some kind of help. Uh, Roosevelt replied that the U.S. was prepared to send material aid uh, willing to have that promise published, but Secretary of State Cordell Hull opposed the publication, knowing that Hitler, as well as the Allies, would take such a public declaration of help as a prelude to a formal declaration of war. While the material aid would be forthcoming, U.S. not ready to declare war yet, uh, though they would freeze American assets of Axis powers. Uh, so militarily, France was on its own. By the time German tanks rolled into Paris, two million Parisians had already fled with good reason. Man, two million. In short order, the German Gestapo went to work with mass arrests, mass interrogations, followed by executions and disappearances, right? Spine, uh, that was now, uh, these are now the orders of the day. A swastika now flew above the Arc de Triomphe, an act of revenge for his nation's defeat in the First World War. Hitler forces French officials to sign surrender papers in the same exact railroad car where Germans signed the armistice of 1918. Now the power-hungry Nazis set their sights on Great Britain. 
Speaking before Parliament on June 18th, 1940, Winston Churchill dramatically predicts what is to come next. What General Maxim, commander of the Allied Army Forces in France, called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. And we will destroy the Nazis. We are going to fuck them harder than my Uncle Nigel ever fucked his mistress. And my lord, did he ever fuck her hard. My brother Jack and I used to cup our ears and listen to their thrashings to the wall of our parents' guest house. Her name was Eliza. And Uncle Nigel said on a great number of occasions that he was going to wear her pussy out. I was far too young to properly understand what that meant. Uncle Nigel said it so frequently and with such conviction, we boys grew fearful for the fate of Eliza's pussy. What would happen if his words rang true? Could she live with a worn-out pussy? She was always able to walk without trouble, so I think it's safe to say that my uncle, my dear Uncle Nigel, never was able to back up his lofty and violent declaration. Not entirely, at least. Eliza was a beautiful and fair young maiden who both Jack and I had feelings for, though we didn't know how to describe them yet. It was a strange time. It is a strange time now, so allow me to make a strange declaration. May Great Britain become my Uncle Nigel's dick, and may Nazi Germany be sweet Eliza's dear pussy, and we are going to fuck it. We are going to do what my uncle could not. Let us brace ourselves for our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. This was when those glorious British bastards completely and beyond any shadow of a doubt wore out Hitler's sweet Nazi pussy. Or maybe instead of all that uncle fucking talk, he actually uh, ended his speech with, uh, uh, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves out that if the British Empire and the Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Or maybe, you know, maybe that's the speech he gave. Uh, June 21st, 1940, Italy also invades France because why not? From July to September 1940, with France under the Nazis' thumb, Britain and Germany fight in the Battle of Britain. German victory would mean that the German army could invade Britain from across the English Channel. But Germany didn't want to do that. Hitler hoped that by conquering France, Britain's cooperation would be assured. They would just bend the knee and he could point his war machine east. Hitler was so sure of that outcome, the German army was given to understand that the war was over. Leave was granted. The Luftwaffe shifted to other quarters. Even when Churchill's determination to continue the war was well known, Hitler still clung to the belief that it was merely a bluff, feeling that Britain must recognize, quote, her militarily hopeless situation. But Churchill, right, wasn't fucking having it. He was Uncle Nigel's cock. Rock hard in his resolve to wear Hitler's Nazi pussy out. By July 2nd, that's not going, that, that analogy is not going away anytime soon. By July 2nd, Hitler now had to reckon with the potential invasion of Britain. At last, on July 16th, he ordered preparations to begin for such an invasion, christened, uh, or christened Operation Sea Line. Hitler commanded the expedition be ready by mid-August. The German army, not prepared for this. The staff had not uh, contemplated it. The troops had not been given enough training for landing operations. Nothing had been done really to build landing craft for the invasion. In fact, all the Germans could really attempt was a hurried effort to collect shipping, bring barges from Germany and the Netherlands, give the troops some practice in embarkation and disembarkation. Soon it became clear to German officials that their army wasn't ready. So they turned to the Luftwaffe, essentially passing the buck entirely to them. It was agreed that Air Marshal uh, Hermann Göring uh, would try a preliminary air offensive, try and bomb the Brits into submission and surrender. Beginning with bomber attacks against shipping uh, on July 10th and continuing into early August, a rising steam of attacks 
stream of attacks was delivered against British convoys and ports. Then on August 13th, the main offensive called Eagle Attack by Hitler was unleashed initially against air bases, but also against aircraft factories and against radar stations in southeastern Europe. Uh, southeastern England, Jesus. The British used uh, just over 600 frontline fighters to defend the country. The Germans, meanwhile, had about 1,300 bombers and dive bombers and about 900 single-engine and 300 twin-engine fighters. Despite their comparative lack of aircraft, the British did have a secret weapon on their side. A massive laser cannon capable of eviscerating anything it fired on named Uncle Nigel's Combat Cock. (laughs) No, of course not. Now, they had a, a radar early warning system called Chain Home, the most advanced and operational adapted system in the world. Even while suffering from frequent attacks by the Luftwaffe, it largely prevented German bomber formations from exploiting the element of surprise. Also made it easier for the British to strike down German aircraft, especially during the day. By late August, the Luftwaffe had lost more than 600 aircraft and the RAF only 260. Uh, Nevertheless, Britain's fighter command was losing badly needed fighters and experienced pilots at too great a rate to be replenished. Everyone knew that the country's fate depended on these few men. Winston Churchill even declared to Parliament on August 20th, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. That guy was truly such a wordsmith. Uh, Germany would now start a tremendous and bloody campaign uh, against British British civilians called the Blitz. At the end of August 1940, Germany begins the Blitz. The first German attack on London civilians actually occurred by accident. On the night of August 24th, 1940, Luftwaffe bombers aiming for military targets on the outskirts of London drifted off course and instead dropped their bombs on the center of London. They destroyed several homes, killed civilians. Amid the public outrage that followed, Winston Churchill, believing it was a deliberate attack, ordered Berlin to be bombed the next evening. About 40 British bombers managed to reach Berlin, where although they only inflicted minimal property damage, the Germans there utterly stunned by Britain's ability to air attack Hitler's capital. First time bombs had fallen on Berlin. Uh, They had been repeatedly assured by uh, Luftwaffe chief, right, uh, Hermann Goering, that this was something that could never happen. Then a second British bombing raid on the night of August 28th and 29th occurred. Two nights later, a third attack occurred. Hitler is pissed, right? He wasn't just going to let anyone wear out his Nazi pussy. Now the Blitz would begin for real in September of 1940 when the Germans furious about the Berlin, Berlin, ah, Berlin bombings and they were thirsty for revenge. Sorry, my cold is fucking ruthless. <laughs> uh, stuffy sinus doesn't help pronunciations when you're already struggling. In a speech delivered on September 4th, 1940, Hitler threatened when the British Air Force drops two or three or 4,000 kilograms of bombs, then we will in one night drop 150, 230, 300, or 400,000 kilograms. When they declare that they will increase their attacks on our cities, then we will raise their cities to the ground. Right? We will stop the handiwork of those night air pirates, so help us God. We are not Eliza's sweet pussy. And we will not be worn out by Uncle Nigel's British cock. Maybe he didn't say that last part. Uh, beginning on September 7th, 1940 for a total of 57 consecutive nights. 57 consecutive nights. London bombed relentlessly by the German Luftwaffe. The decision to wage a massive bombing campaign against London and other English cities would prove to be one of the most fateful of the war. Up to that point, the Luftwaffe had targeted Royal Air Force airfields and support installations and had nearly destroyed the entire British air defense system. Switching to an all-out attack on British cities gave RAF Fighter Command a desperately needed break and an opportunity to rebuild damaged airfields, train new pilots, and repair aircraft. Churchill later wrote, it was, therefore, with a sense of relief, that Fighter Command felt that the German attack turn on London. Not to say that the attacks weren't devastating. During the nightly bombing raids on London, people took shelter in in warehouse basements, underground subway stations, slept on makeshift beds amid primitive conditions with no privacy, 
poor sanitation facilities. London, not the only city getting bombed, uh, either over 20 other British cities targeted during the Blitz. For days, people crowded to makeshift shelters, right? Praying that their lives wouldn't be taken by the Nazis. That's exactly what Hitler wanted. He wanted to demoralize Churchill into negotiating. But Churchill, who knew the power of speaking directly to the people well, knew that morale was one of the most important parts of fighting a war, would rally the British people despite the constant barrage of bombs dropping on their neighborhoods. In the end, the bombings actually had the opposite effect of what Hitler wanted. They brought British people closer together in the face of a common enemy. Encouraged by Churchill's frequent public appearances and radio speeches, the people became determined to hold out indefinitely against Nazi onslaught. Business as usual, a defiant slogan could be seen everywhere, written in chalk on boarded up shop windows. That's fucking tough ass people. Reminds me of modern day uh, Ukrainians. Uh, The Blitz would last through May of 1941. By the end of 1940, German air raids had killed 15,000 British civilians approximately. One of the worst attacks occurred on the night of November 14th and 15th, right? Flown in from the 14th and 15th against Coventry, an industrial city east of Birmingham in central England. In that one raid, 449 German bombers dropped 1,400 high-explosive bombs and 100,000 incendiaries, which destroyed 50,000 buildings, killed 568 people, left over 1,000 others badly injured. The incendiary devices created firestorms with superheated gale-force winds drawing in torrents of air to fan enormous walls of flames, like hell itself. So much destruction. In total, 18,000 tons of high-explosives have been dropped on England during eight months of the Blitz. A total of uh, over 18,000 men, 18,629, over 16,000 women, over 5,000 children were killed, along with 695 unidentified charred bodies, over 40,000 civilian deaths. Now let's back up to mid-September 1940. The Blitz is raging, right? And the Battle of Britain, RAF versus the Luftwaffe, still has not been won. In fact, the Blitz only came to be Hitler's chosen strategy because the Luftwaffe wasn't doing a great job of taking down RAF fighters. British fighters were shooting down German bombs or bombers faster than German industry could produce them. And while the Blitz caused a lot of civilian deaths, it wouldn't bring Hitler closer to his main objective of dominating the British skies. On September 3rd, the date of a land invasion uh, was deferred to the September. Oh my God. On September 3rd, the date of a land invasion was deferred to September 21st. And then on September 19th, Hitler ordered the shipping gathered for Operation Sea Lion to be dispersed. On October 12th, he announced that the operation was to be off for the winter. And then long before the arrival of spring, he decided to turn eastward against Russia. And then there would be no land invasion. The Battle of Britain was over then and Britain had won. The Nazis were not an unstoppable force after all. Huge moral victory for all of Europe. On September 13th, 1940, the Italians invade British-controlled Egypt now from Italian-controlled Libya. Did I mention that Mussolini's Italians took over Libya in 1934? They did. Uh, Italy had been attempting to subdue Libya for decades. Right, again, these uh, colonial power ambitions. The Axis powers uh, wanted to control North Africa for a variety of reasons. Most important to the war effort was to lock up control of the Mediterranean and with it essential trade routes for valuable minerals and food to keep the war effort going. On September 27th, Germany, Italy, and Japan now signed the Tri... Oh, I forgot to look at the pronunciation, but tri, Tripartite tripartite Pact. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. Uh, the core of the Axis powers. They pledged to assist one another with all political, economic, and military means when any one of them was attacked by a power at present not involved in the European war or the Sino-Japanese conflict. This new pact left out the Soviet Union, seen as it was already involved in both wars. Why? Well, who's left when you discount all the countries involved in the wars in the East and the West? The United States. The Axis powers sending a clear message with this pact to America telling them not to get involved. October 28th, 1940, Italy now invades Greece from Albania. Also on this date, 
absolutely nothing happens related to the war in San Marino. They keep doing whatever the nine or 10 people living there at the time did. Probably made cheese or wine. Maybe chatted with Benicio del Toro. November of 1940, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia joined the Axis powers. As possessions of Germany with largely puppet governments, they didn't have much of a choice. It was either join forces with or be attacked and be defeated by. Faced with defeat by Britain and much of the continent of Europe successfully taken over, Hitler and the Nazis turned their sights towards Mother Russia. On December 18th, 1940, Hitler signs Directive 21, codenamed Operation Barbarossa. This was the first operational order for the invasion of the Soviet Union. During the winter and spring months of 1941, officials of the German Army High Command and the Reich Security Main Office would work to deploy Einsatzgruppen behind Russian front lines. These mobile killing squads, these roving groups of murderous dirtbags would conduct mass shootings of Jews, communists, other persons deemed to be dangerous to establishing long-term German rule on Soviet territory. We covered those fuckers more in depth in the two-part series on the Holocaust. Between 1941 and 1945, the Einsatzgruppen related agencies and foreign auxiliary personnel murdered more than 2 million people, including 1.3 million of the 5.5 to 6 million Jews murdered during the Holocaust. In addition, the German military planned the tens of millions of Soviet citizens or planned that tens of millions of Soviet citizens would starve to death as the intentional result of German occupation policies. And again, so much easier to be really effective in war if you just don't give a single fuck about the people you're fighting. Military, civilians, whatever. February of 1941, the Germans send the Africa Corps to North Africa to reinforce the faltering Italians there. German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, a.k.a. the Desert Fox, highly decorated in World War II, World War One, who commanded the 7th Panzer Division during the 1940 invasion of France, we mentioned earlier, uh, will earn his Desert Fox nickname by dominating many an African battlefield. Now finally, the U.S. is really uh, ready to start thinking about doing something to help its European allies. March 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt convinces a largely isolationist Congress to pass the Lend-Lease Act, allowing the U.S. to sell or lend war material to any country whose defense the president deems vital to the defense of the United States. Same month, Bulgaria joins the Axis powers. Beginning on April 6, 1941, Germany, Italy, Hungary invade Yugoslavia and together with Bulgaria, dismember it. Yugoslavia surrendered on April 17th. Germany, Germany and Bulgaria now invade Greece in support of the Italians there. From May 20th to June 1st, Nazi paratroopers invade the Greek island of Crete, marking history's first mostly airborne attack using paratroopers, roughly 22,000 of them parachuting in. With nearly 3,000 Germans killed, many of them either shot out of the sky or shot just after landing, Hitler decries the day of the parachutists is over. And that's the Nazis' last airborne campaign like that. Uh, despite the losses, the Nazis do overtake Crete, which now becomes part of Axis territory. Now Hitler is ready to make his biggest move to date. Under the code name, again, Operation Barbarossa, Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union June 22nd, 1941. Why? To prove that they were so much more than Eliza's pussy. To prove that they would not let Britain's uncle cock wear them out. But for real, why? Didn't they have a non-aggression pact with the Russians? Sort of. As we've already proven, Hitler not really interested and being a good ally. That slick son of a bitch always kept his fingers crossed behind his back when he shook hands or signed deals. It was like he had a third hand always behind his back. Fingers always crossed. Uh, main tenet of the Nazis' ideology was actually the eradication of communism, so they, they probably knew it wasn't going to last long. Since the 1920s, core policies of the Nazi movement included the destruction of the Soviet Union by military force, the permanent elimination of the perceived communist threat to Germany, and the seizure of prime land within Soviet borders as part of that Liebenschraum living space, right, uh, for long-term German resettlement. As such, the non-aggression pact had always been a temporary tactical maneuver, not something Hitler ever really intended to recognize. Now it's time for his big Nazi pussy 
to try and swallow up Stalin's Uncle Cock. With 134 divisions at full fighting strength and 73 more divisions for deployment behind the front, German forces invaded the Soviet Union. June 22nd, 1941 again, three army groups attacked the Soviet Union across the broad front. These groups included more than 3 million German soldiers. More than 3 million. That is such a huge number of soldiers fighting a common enemy together in the same place. Hard to wrap my head around. That's more than all of the military servicemen and women sent to Vietnam during the entire duration of that conflict. Almost as many as the total number of Union and Confederate soldiers who enlisted in the entirety of the U.S. Civil War. And this was just a small portion of the total German army fighting in World War II. There were other military units fighting elsewhere in Europe, in the Atlantic, Africa. A total of 13.6 million soldiers would serve in the German army in World War II. Roughly 18 million men overall would serve in the German military. It's fucking bonkers. The German soldiers fighting Russia were supported by 650,000 additional troops from Nazi conquests, Finland and Romania. These troops later augmented by units from Italy, Croatia, Slovakia, and Hungary. The front stretched from the Baltic Sea in the north all the way to the Baltic Sea in the south. The Soviet Union might have been able to fight them off if, they, uh, if they'd listened to Allies' warnings about the Germans building up troops along Russia's western border. Russia's western border. But as it stood, Germany had the advantage of surprise. Much of the existing Soviet Air Force was destroyed on the ground before ever getting a chance to take off. Fla- fucking Blitzkrieg strikes again. German units encircled millions of Soviet soldiers. Cut off from the supplies and reinforcements and Soviet soldiers had few options other than to surrender or to die. And Russians did die like no others in this war. World War II losses of the Soviet Union from all related causes estimated to have been around 27 million. All right, that's both civilian and military. Exact figures are disputed. A figure of 20 million considered official uh, during the Soviet era or Soviet Soviet era. Come on, mouth. Uh, some Russian historians put the total number of military and civilian deaths at 40 million. As the German army advanced deep into Soviet territory, SS and police units followed the troops. The first to arrive were the Einsatzgruppen. As planned, the Soviet Union saw catastrophic military losses in the first six weeks after the German attack. However, the Soviet Union failed to completely collapse as anticipated by the Nazi leadership and the German military commanders. Just like with Britain, the Russians bent but did not break. Just like with Britain, their hard uncle cock would soon wear Hitler's pussy out. And then by mid-August 1941, the Russians mounted significant resistance. Just not for long. They'd knocked the Germans off their timetable of winning the war by autumn 1941. And by late September 1941, German forces still had reached uh, the gates of the Russian city of Leningrad, today St. Petersburg in the north. They also took uh, Smolensk, a city in Russia located over 200 miles southwest of Moscow, as well as uh, Napier, a city in Ukraine, located over 200 miles southeast of Kiev. And just a quick note on uh, Napier. I, that's how it was said in numerous like travel vlog videos. It's spelled D-N-I-P-R-O, pronounced Napier. 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 There we go. Napier. Napier. This is why these words are so fucking hard. Jesus Christ. Uh, they would reach the outskirts of Moscow by early December. Let's pause Russia for just a small moment now. Head back to the summer of 1941. August of 41, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt have a secret uh, meeting, series of them, conducted on warships off of Newfoundland. Newfoundland. From these meetings, they produced the Atlantic Charter, outlining goals concerning the final destruction of Nazi tyranny and pledged to support the right of all peoples to choose the form of government under which they will live. FDR, about to bring his uncle cock into the ring. Maybe not as hard as Britain's or Russia's, but yeah, you know, forget I said anything. Beginning on September 8th, 1941, German and Finnish soldiers began a nearly 900-day siege and blockade of Leningrad, the second biggest Soviet city and a major center of industry. 
With supplies, water, electricity, and transportation cut off, 1.3 million people are evacuated. The Red Army will finally break through the blockade on January of uh, 1942. The siege ends, the city is free, but approximately 800,000 civilians have died by that point, most from starvation. The amount of atrocities, uh, the amount of atrocities in this war, just mind-boggling. Uh, by December, after months of campaigning, the German army is exhausted. Having expected a rapid Soviet collapse, German planners failed to equip their troops for winter warfare. Whoops, slight oversight. In hindsight, they wish they would have packed coats and mittens and stuff. And I now wrote myself a note to tell my Nazi bad boy soldiers to bring themselves some warm clothes and mittens and such for the winter ones. Where does that note go? Who took that note? The Jews. The Jews took my mitten note. Uh, German command didn't provide sufficient food and medicines as they'd expected their military personnel to live off the land of a conquered Soviet Union at the expense of the local population. But the local population didn't have everything they'd hoped for to sustain them in the brutal Russian winter months. And consequently, the German forces overstretched along the 1,000-mile-long Eastern Front became weakened and vulnerable to Soviet counterattack. December 6, 1941, the Soviet Union launches a major offensive against the center of the front. This drives the Germans back from Moscow in chaos. It takes weeks for the Germans to stabilize the front east of Smolensk. Just a day later, December 7th, the United States is thrust into the war. Officially now, they were on the edge already when Japan launches a devastating surprise attack on the U.S. naval fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. President Roosevelt will ask Congress to declare war on Japan the following day, December 8th. Three days later, Germany and Italy declare war on the U.S. And we'll cover the U.S.'s war again with Japan next week. Crazy that so much has happened and the, and the U.S. has just entered the war now. January of 1942, U.S. troops arrive in Europe. Through March, the number of troops shipped overseas averages about 50,000 a month, a number that will soar upwards of 250,000 a month in 1944. From May 12th to May 28th, in a counteroffensive after Germany's attack on Moscow, the Soviet Red Army attacks Kharkov, Ukraine, probably butchering that uh, uh, pronunciation, with the aid of 1,500 tanks and 1,000 aircraft, but German intelligence alerts the Axis powers to the campaign, and they fight back ferociously. Facing nearly 300,000 casualties and gaining little traction, the Soviets are forced to concede. They aren't out of the woods with the Nazis just yet. May 30th, the British bomb Cologne in the start of a bombing campaign that will bring the war home to Germany. On the night of May 30th into the 31st, more than 1,000 bombers are dispatched to Cologne where they do heavy damage to a third of the city's built-up area. Over the next three years, thousands of Allied bombing strikes will reduce many of urban, uh, Germany's urban areas to rubble. These attacks, which were primarily aimed against factories, rail depots, uh, dockyards, bridges and dams, and against cities and towns themselves, were intended to both destroy Germany's war industries and to deprive its civilian population of their housing, thus sapping their will to continue the war. But they also hit a lot of non-military targets. Estimates of German uh, civilians killed only by Allied strategic bombing strikes have ranged from around 350,000 to 500,000 souls. Now let's hear about a very interesting group of people fighting in Russia beginning in June of 1942, a group I don't remember ever hearing about before. And there's so many groups like this. Made up of only women, the Russian 588th Night Bomber Regiment was trained for bombing missions behind German lines, flying 1920s-era planes built of fucking wood and canvas, no radio, no radar, bombs held to the wings by wires. Fucking wires. This construction gave the planes the advantage of flying below radar and surprised the enemy in the dead of the night. Officially known as Stalin's Falcons, the regiment was given a much cooler fucking moniker by the Germans of the Night Witches. Hail Lucifina. This kind of shit. This is why we can do hundreds of only World War II related episodes. 
And we will do so many more going forward, I'm guessing. The fucking Night Witches. How has that not been made into a blockbuster action movie yet? Night Witches were the first women military pilots in the 20th century to, to, to uh, directly engage an enemy in combat. And the pilots were the only women in the 588th. All the members of the 588th were women. Navigators, ground crews, support staff, everyone. Flying 15 to 18 missions per night each. My God, their planes often returned riddled with bullets, according to former night witch Nadia Popova. Enlisted and only 19 years old, Nadia's motive was revenge for her brother killed on the front, her home taken over by German soldiers, her town destroyed by German aircraft. She wanted to wear that Nazi pussy out. She wanted to make those Nazis suck her Russian dick. I always find it funny. Think about female badasses telling other people to suck their dicks. Also fun to flip around for dudes too, right? Try it, Mel Meatsacks. If you ever get into a screaming match with some guy, ever some tough guy situation, maybe yell something like, you know what, man? Fuck you. You can eat my fucking pussy. You can munch this box, bro. Really throw him off, I think. Uh, because the Soviet Air Force had no females up until then, the women were given old men's uniforms, their clothes often too large and baggy, their boots sometimes so oversized, they would tear up their bedding and stuff it in the toes to make the boots fit better. These night witches, love that name so much, accomplished their mission to disrupt the German sleep and therefore morale uh, while bombing important targets. From June of 1942 to October of 1945, this unit would fly approximately 23,672 combat missions, drop over 3,000 tons of bombs, and uh, and over 26,000 incendiary shells. They damaged or destroyed 17 river crossings, 9 railways, 2 railway stations, 26 warehouses, 12 fuel depots, 176 armored cars, 86 prepared flying positions, and 11 searchlights. 261, 261 women served in the regiment. 32 died in combat. They also made 155 supply drops of food and ammunition to Soviet forces. Steve Prouse, screenwriter who tried to get a film made about these boss bitches a decade ago, said they never used radios, so radio locators couldn't pick them up either. They were basically ghosts. Sources don't list how many Nazis they killed. Uh, at least I can't find specific information pertaining to that. Uh, might not exist, right? They didn't fly back to ask him questions about how many people they killed, and the Nazis didn't always keep records of their losses, but I'm guessing thousands. Articles about these amazing soldiers, uh, you know, amazing pilots. Uh, there was links to so many other stories I'd never heard of. Again, there's, you could spend years telling badass World War II tales. Hail Lusafina. All right, refocusing now. Beginning of June 28th, 1942, Germany and its access partners launch a new offensive in the Soviet Union. German troops fight their way into Stalingrad on the Volga River by mid-September and penetrate deep into the Caucasus after securing the Crimean, Crimean, oh my God, Crimean Peninsula. With German forces in North Africa having also penetrated Egypt, German Germany was at the height of its military success in World War II at this time. The Axis powers of Germany and Italy, but mostly Germany, controlled territory from Western France to almost Moscow in the east and down south across massive swaths of Northern Africa. The Nazis alone occupied over 20 nations at their height. In August of 1942, Germany begins its assault on the Russian city of Stalingrad. Stalin and his advisors had expected Germany to try and take over Moscow. Hitler had other plans. Set aside on Stalingrad because the city served as an industrial center in Russia, producing, amongst other important goods, artillery for the country's troops. The Volga River, which runs through the city, was also an important shipping route connecting the western part of the country with its distant eastern regions. Ultimately, Adolf Hitler wanted his military to occupy Stalingrad, seeing its value for propaganda purposes, given that it bore Stalin's name. For similar reasons, the Russians felt a special need to protect it. When Hitler proclaimed that upon taking Stalingrad, all of the city's male residents would be killed and all of its women deported, Jesus, stage was set for a bloody hard-fought battle. 
Stalin ordered all Russians strong enough to hold a rifle to take up arms in defense of the city. How fucking terrifying. These poor people waiting for Hitler's murder machine to mow them down, knowing it was coming, knowing they had no problem butchering all of them. The 6th Army of the Wehrmacht began their assault on August 23rd, 1942. From August 1942 through February 1943, more than 2 million troops fought in close quarters in the Battle of Stalingrad. Nearly 2 million people killed or injured in the fighting, including tens of thousands of Russian civilians. Russian forces initially able to slow the German Wehrmacht's advances during a series of brutal skirmishes just north of Stalingrad. Stalin's forces lost more than 200,000 men but successfully held off German soldiers. Lost more than 200,000 men. With the firm understanding of Hitler's plans, the Russians had already shipped much of the stores of grain and cattle out of Stalingrad. However, the city's 400,000 plus residents were not evacuated because Russian leadership believed their presence would inspire troops. Interesting idea. Risk the lives of hundreds of thousands of civilians to boost troop morale. Oh, Stalin, what a fucking sociopath. Uh, within a few days of launching its attack, Germany's Luftwaffe Air Force had rendered the Volga River impassable to shipping, had sunk several Russian commercial vessels in the process. From late August to the end of the assault, the Luftwaffe conducted dozens of airstrikes on the city. By September, the Luftwaffe essentially had control of the skies over Stalingrad, and the Russians were getting desperate. Workers in the city not involved in war-related weapons production asked to take up fighting, uh, often without firearms of their own. Women enlisted to dig trenches at the front lines, and yet the Russians continued to suffer heavy losses. By the fall of 1942, Stalingrad lay in ruins. Despite heavy casualties and the pounding delivered by the Luftwaffe, Stalin instructed his forces in the city to not retreat, retreat, famously decreeing in order number 227, not a step back. Let them know that those who surrender will be subjected by trial uh, and face possible execution. With fewer possible, probably meant probable. Uh, with fewer than 20,000 troops left in the city, less than, less than 100 tanks, Stalin's generals finally began sending reinforcements into the city and surrounding areas. Fighting raged in the streets of Stalingrad with both sides using snipers poised on the roofs of the city's buildings. Russian generals uh, George uh, Zukov and Alexander Vasilkelsky organized Russian troops in the mountains to the north and west of the city. From there, they launched a counterattack famously known as Operation Uranus. They would attempt to fight off Hitler's pussy with their Uranus. Interesting. Although they again sustained significant losses, Russian forces able to form what in essence was a defensive ring around the city by late November of 1942, trapping the nearly 300,000 German and access troops in the 6th Army fighting there. With the Russian blockade limiting access to supplies, German forces now trapped in Stalingrad slowly starved. The Russians would seize upon the resulting weakness during the cold, harsh winter months that followed. As Russia's brutal winter began, Soviet generals knew the Germans would be at a disadvantage fighting in conditions to which they were not accustomed. They began consolidating their positions around Stalingrad, choking off the German forces from vital supplies and essentially surrounding them in an ever-tightening noose. Thanks to Russian gains in nearby fighting, uh, including in Rostov-on-Don, 250 miles from Stalingrad, the Axis forces, mostly Germans and Italians, were stretched thin. Through Operation Little Saturn, the Russians now began to break the lines of the mostly Italian forces to the west of the city, at this point, German generals abandoned all efforts to relieve their beleaguered forces trapped in Stalingrad. Still, Hitler refused to have them surrender, even as his men slowly starved and ran out of ammunition. Man, so many fucking, so much suffering in this war. Now jumping back to North Africa before wrapping up the bloody Battle of Stalingrad. From November 8th to the 16th, Allies invaded French North Africa in an attempt to draw the Axis powers away from Soviet attacks on the Eastern Front and to gain control of those crucial Mediterranean shipping lanes. And General Dwight D. Eisenhower 
led attacks on Casablanca and several other Axis-controlled North African cities before advancing on Tunis and realigning it with the Allies. The victory was touted by Winston Churchill as the end of the beginning. Again, the dude knew how to pen a phrase. January of 1943, Roosevelt and Churchill hold a conference at Casablanca in Morocco. Their aim is to figure out what should be done after victory in Northern Africa. This was because in, North, in November of 1942, U.S. and British troops had landed on the beaches of Algeria and Morocco in French North Africa, forcing the Nazi collaborating uh, French troops there to flee back to France. The Allies had then uh, moved swiftly to the western border of Tunisia. Victory now seemed possible for the Allies in Northern Africa. After long argument, Roosevelt and Churchill agreed that Sicily should be the next Axis area to be taken in July. Politically, the Casablanca Conference owes its importance to the fact that, at its end, Roosevelt publicly announced a demand for the unconditional surrender of Germany, Italy, and Japan. The following month, in late February, Germany's desert fox Erwin Rommel wins his last battle in Africa against the Americans in the Battle of Kasserine Pass. Wish I had the extra bandwidth this week to do more with that story. It's a cool one. Fox is uh, 22,000. Well, it's cool as far as war history. Not cool for the Allies. The Fox's 22,000 men defeated 30,000 30, U.S. forces. Uh, the Germans took out 183 U.S. tanks while losing only 20. Killed or wounded 3,300 U.S. troops while losing less than 1,000 of their own. Going forward, reinforcements would swell Allied numbers, numbers the Axis powers couldn't keep up with. They were still dedicating massive amount of troops to fighting in Russia. The Desert Fox's, uh, you know, battles would be lost. They were just fighting in too many places too quickly. Speaking of Russia, by February of 1943, Russian troops had retaken Stalingrad, captured nearly 100,000 German soldiers, though pockets of resistance continued to fight in the city until early March. Most of the captured soldiers died in Russian prison camps uh, as a result of either disease or starvation. They were almost dead by the time the Russians got them. It was Hitler's first massive and public wartime failure, at least the first one he acknowledged. Stalingrad also put Hitler and the Axis powers on the defensive now and boosted Russian confidence as it continued to do battle on the Eastern Front. Hitler suffered between 750,000 and 870,000 combat casualties in just that one month. Zax's buddies, Italy, uh, suffered around 114,000 combat casualties. Romania, anywhere from 109 to 160,000. And Hungary, another 140,000. Just hundreds and hundreds of thousands. On May 13th, 1943, Axis forces in Tunisia surrendered to the Allies, ending the North African campaign. U.S. troops led by Generals Dwight Eisenhower and George S. Patton joined forces with British troops under the command of Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery to defeat German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel in North Africa. One month after the disaster at Kasserine Pass, Patton led the American army to victory at the Battle of El Guitar. Before taking command in North Africa, General Patton, dude had a way with words as well, wrote a badass letter to his troops. Here's an excerpt. Our duty is plain. We must utterly defeat the enemy. Fortunately for our fame as soldiers, our enemy is worthy of us. The German is a war-trained veteran, confident, brave, ruthless. We are brave. We are better equipped, better fed. And in the place of his blood-gutted wooden, we have with us the God of our fathers known of old. The justice of our cause and not the greatness of our race makes us confident. But we are not ruthless, not vicious, not aggressive. Therein lies our weakness. Children of a free and sheltered people who have lived a generous life, we have not the pugnacious disposition of those oppressed beasts, our enemies, who must fight or starve. Our bravery is too negative. We talk too much of sacrifice, of the glory of dying, that freedom may live. Of course we are willing to die, but that is not enough. We must be eager to kill, to inflict on the enemy, the hated enemy, wounds, death, and destruction. If we die killing, well and good. But if we fight hard enough, viciously enough, we will kill and live. Live to return to our family and our girl as conquering heroes, men of Mars. 
The reputation of our army, the future of our race, your own glory rests in your hands. I know you will be worthy. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Tides of war are turning. June of 1943, Eisenhower is appointed commander of U.S. forces in Europe. Born on October 14th, 1890 in Denison, Texas, Eisenhower, the third of seven sons of David Jacob and Ida Elizabeth. In the spring of 1891, the Eisenhowers left Texas and returned to Abilene, Kansas, where their forebears had settled as part of a Mennonite colony. David worked in a creamery. Family was poor. Dwight and his brothers were introduced to hard work and a strong religious tradition at an early age. Ike, as Dwight was called, was a fun-loving youth who enjoyed sports but took only a moderate interest in studies. Dwight graduated from Abilene High School in 1909, worked for more than a year to support a brother's college education, then entered the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, a decision that left his mother a pacifist in tears. In the remarkable class of 1915, which was to produce 59 generals, he ranked 61st academically, 125th in discipline out of the total of 164 graduates. Those rankings did not point towards what would be his incredible future. After being commissioned as second lieutenant, he was sent to San Antonio. During World War I, Eisenhower commanded a tank training center, was promoted to captain, received the Distinguished Service Medal, and then the war ended just before he was about to be sent overseas. A couple years later, Eisenhower was selected to attend the Army's Command and General Staff School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Then a major, he graduated first in a class of 275 in 1926, and two years later graduated from the Army War College. He then served in France, where he wrote a guidebook of World War I battlefields and in Washington, D.C., before becoming an aide to Army Chief of Staff General Douglas MacArthur in 1933. Two years later, he accompanied MacArthur to the Philippines to assist in the reorganization of the Commonwealth's Army, and while there, awarded the Distinguished Service Star of the Philippines, excuse me, and promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. When the United States entered World War II in December of 1941, Marshall appointed Eisenhower to the Army's War Plans Division in Washington, D.C., where he prepared strategy for an Allied invasion in Europe. Eisenhower had been made a Brigadier General in September of 1941, promoted to Major General March of 1942, also named Head of Operations of the Division of the War Department, Head of the Operations Division of the War Department, excuse me. June of, in June, Marshall selected him over 366 other senior officers to be commander of all U.S. troops in Europe. Eisenhower's rapid advancement after a long Army career spent in relative obscurity was due not only to his knowledge of military strategy and talent for organization, but an ability to persuade, mediate, and get along with others. Apparently, men from a wide variety of backgrounds impressed by his friendliness, humility, and persistent optimism trusted and liked him. A phrase that later became one of the most famous campaign slogans in American history seemed to reflect the impression of everyone who met him. I like Ike. And Ike, like Churchill, was now determined to use his uncle cock to wear out Hitler's pussy. July 5th, 1943, the Germans launch a massive tank offensive near Kursk in the Soviet Union. Military history's largest tank battle takes place on the Eastern Front, involving an estimated 6,000 tanks, 4,000 aircraft, and 2 fucking million soldiers. In its last Blitzkrieg offensive, Germany attacks the Red Army, but the Soviets are prepared, and they keep Hitler from conquering Russia. The Soviets blunt the attack within a week and begin an offensive initiative of their own, the tides of war further turning on Hitler. July 24th, 1943, British bombers raid Hamburg, Germany by night in Operation Gomorrah, while Americans bomb it by day in what's called Blitz Week. Britain suffered the deaths of 167 civilians as a result of German bombing raids that July. Now the tables are turning. The evening of July 24th sees British aircraft drop 2,300 tons of incendiary bombs on Hamburg in just a couple hours. The explosive power was the equivalent of what German bombers had dropped on London in their five most destructive raids combined. More than 1,500 German civilians are killed. 
Britain loses only 12 aircraft in this raid out of 791, thanks to new radar jamming devices called Window, which consisted of strips of aluminum foil dropped by the bombers en route to their target. These window strips confused German radar, which mistook the strips for dozens and dozens of aircraft, diverting them from the trajectory of the actual bombers. To make matters worse for Germany, the U.S. 8th Air Force begins a comprehensive bombing run in northern Germany, which included two raids on Hamburg during daylight hours. These attacks on Hamburg would continue until November of 1943. When it was all over, 17,000 bombers, bomber sorties, excuse me, had dropped more than 9,000 tons of explosives, killing more than 30,000 people and destroying a preposterous 280,000 buildings, including industrial and munitions plants. Hamburg was fucking obliterated. These bombings had a devastating effect on German morale. Hitler refused to visit the burned out cities as the ruins bespoke nothing but the end of the war for him. Diary entries of high German officials from this period speak of despair as they tried to understand how, how could their all-powerful empire be dealt such a defeat? Here is a quick excerpt from Hitler's diary from October 31st, Halloween, 1943. As a Jew, I'm so furious. I wanted to have such a good time this Halloween. I have the coolest costume. I was going to dress up as Vincent Churchill, wear a fat suit in a bald cap, and the bow tie and suck on a cigar that said Hitler's penis on it. <laughs> now have a kick me sign on my back. But the Jews are dropping so many Jew bombs. It looks like Churchill's winning. Like he's wearing my pussy out. So I just stay home and I just hand out the candy to the kids who had not been bombed yet. It's so sad. Uh, July, from July to September 1943, Allied forces capture Sicily and key spots in southern Italy. Mussolini getting his pussy worn out. Uh, on July 10th, U.S. and British troops land on Sicily. By mid-August, the Allies control Sicily. And on July 25th, the fascist Grand Council deposes Benito Mussolini, enabling Italian Marshal Pietro Badoglio to form a new government. Mussolini is now in prison. Hitler's Axis buddy locked up. His year keeps getting shittier. Meanwhile, Hitler dispatches German troops to try and fend off an Allied advance in what will be a series of hard-fought Kelsey battles. September 8th, 1943, Italy's new government surrenders unconditionally to the Allies. But the Allies do not take over Italy. The Germans immediately seize control of Rome and northern Italy, establishing a puppet fascist regime under, again, Mussolini, who is freed from imprisonment by German commandos on September 12th. Just when we thought America's Uncle Dick had worn the Italian Axis pussy out, it's wet and ready to rumble all over again. September 9th, Allied troops now land on the beaches of Salerno near Naples. The invasion of Italy continues. The big three, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, convene in Tehran, Iran to discuss the further invasion of Italy. It is the first time all three have met. They immediately head into the bathroom together and compare penis sizes. No one will ever verify whose was the biggest, but Stalin's eyes were red as if he'd been crying when he came back out. Uh, Stalin able to keep fighting them. The Red Army continued its recent success against Nazis and on November 6th, liberate Kiev. November or December of 1943, Eisenhower named Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe. He now provides all leadership for not just U.S. forces, but all Allied forces. Under Ike's leadership on January 22nd, 1944, Allied troops land successfully near Anzio, just south of Rome. Anzio, Anzio! Attempting to liberate Italy and catch the Germans by surprise, the Allies quickly secure a beachhead during Operation Shingle. However, continued access resistance and counterattacks ensue, resulting in a stalemate that doesn't end until the fall of Rome. It's seen as a failure for the Allies, although it does keep German troops from moving to France in the days before the historic Allied invasion of Normandy. 
In February of 1944, German aircraft production centers are the target of a massive bombing campaign by the U.S. Army Air Corps. More than 600 U.S. bombers raid Berlin. Despite the devastation caused by the bombing, Germany is able to maintain weapons and aircraft production levels. The war, still not over. May 30th, the Allied invasion of France commences. Troops based in England began their mobilization across the channel in a massive effort codenamed Operation Overlord. Badass codename. Uh, Eisenhower will wait for good weather forecast uh, to determine the exact day of the invasion. In the days leading up to D-Day, a number of problems are evident to the men planning the invasion of occupied Europe. Chief amongst them is the Atlantic Wall, a series of German defenses that stretched from Norway all the way to the Franco-Spanish border. It was a series of mines, pillboxes, tank traps, and pikes meant to impale paratroopers that stretched for over 3,200 miles. This presented a formidable obstacle to the Allied armies who would need to develop new specialist vehicles to combat not only these defensive obstacles, but also climb up soft sand from the sea and other logistical difficulties, uh, you know, to overcome that. The task was assigned to Major General Sir Percy Hobart, known as Hobo. Most of the new vehicles Hobo oversaw production of, which came to be known as the Funnies, were based on the design of the Churchill tank, whose low center of gravity and roomy interior made it ideal for modification. The most famous of the Churchill modifications was the flame-throwing crocodile tank, the mere sight of which often uh, enough to uh, compel German soldiers to surrender. If you want to do an image search for the Churchill crocodile tank, it is pretty fucking terrifying. That flamethrower. Other ingenious features implemented were turrets that could be swapped out for bridges and rolling mats to allow armored vehicles to drive on beaches with soft sand without getting stuck. Uh, variations of Sherman tanks were also used, including one that was designed to be launched from deep water and effectively swim in with the first assaults, after which a large waterproof screen would come down, allowing the tank to fight as normal. Another variant was a flail for mine clearance, which proved to be a vital asset. So much military tech being developed so quickly. Men and women working in shifts around the clock to get their tech built the fastest. Uh, the funny saved many lives during the attacks on British and Canadian occupied beaches. General Eisenhower even said it was doubtful if the assault forces could have firmly established themselves without the assistance of these weapons, right? Who could develop the best new weapons the most uh, quickly, such an important aspect of World War II. Uh, And real quick before D-Day, on June 4th, Allied troops liberate Rome. Within six weeks, Anglo-American bombers could hit targets in eastern Germany now for the first time. But their biggest victory will yet come uh, in two short days. Their biggest victory yet. June 6, 1944, Eisenhower gambles on a break in bad weather, gives the order to launch the Normandy invasion, the largest amphibious attack in history. During the operation, Allied troops land on five beaches on the coast of Normandy. The beaches were codenamed Omaha, Gold, Juno, Sword, and Utah. On the night before the amphibious landings, more than 23,000 U.S., British, and Canadian paratroopers had landed in France behind the German defensive lines by parachute and glider. The invasion forces outnumbered about, or the invasion forces numbered about 175,000 Allied troops, 50,000 vehicles, some 5,000 naval crafts, and more than 11,500 aircraft. Uh, that was that, that was what supported the initial invasion. At first, under the overall command of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, the Germans held the advantage in battle positioning. They had deployed five infantry divisions, one airborne division, and one tank division along the Normandy coast. However, the Allies had an overwhelming advantage in naval and air power. On D-Day alone, the Allies flew 14,000 sorties. In contrast, the German Air Force managed only 500. Moreover, a successful Allied deception plan had led the Germans to believe the point of attack would be further north and east on the coast, near Calais and the Belgian border. 
Uh, deceived, the Germans moved only slowly to reinforce Normandy defenses after the initial landing. Uh, by nightfall on June 6th, some 100,000 Allied servicemen had come ashore. Man, 100,000. Uh, despite Allied superiority, the Germans contained Allied troops in their slowly expanding or contained Allied troops in their slowly expanding beachhead for six weeks. The U.S. 1st and 29th Infantry Divisions made the most difficult landing on Omaha Beach. Stiff German resistance here caused over 3,000 casualties before Allied troops could establish their positions by the end of the first day. On D-Day itself, Allied troops suffered more than 10,000 casualties, with 4,400 confirmed dead. Specifically, British and Canadian forces suffered around 3,700 casualties, and U.S. forces suffered about 6,600 casualties. Um, sorry, I already said the uh, the uh, the U.S. number is 10,000. German forces lost between 4,000 and 9,000 men. Sources a little bit uh, all over with their numbers. The total casualty cost of Normandy campaign would be high on both sides. From D-Day through August 21st, the Allies landed more than 2 million men in northern France, suffered more than 225,000 casualties, uh, almost 73,000 killed and missing, and over 153,000 wounded. German losses included over 2,240,000 2, casualties and 200,000 captured. Now, with so many forces in France, the Allies can take back Paris. And a real Nazi defeat seems closer than ever. Meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, the Soviets launch a massive offensive in Eastern Belarus, uh, 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 forgot to look up that one too. There's too many fucking countries in this world war on uh, June 22nd, destroying the German army group center there and driving westward towards the Vishula river and towards Warsaw and central Poland by August 1st. Allied forces would reach Paris on August 20th. On August 25th, free French forces supported by allied troops and led by general Charles de Gaulle enter the French capital. After four years of German occupation, four years, France is finally free. Hail Nimrod. Uh, now the allies can take back the rest of Europe. Hitler's pussy, not worn out yet, but it's getting pretty tired. By September, the allies will reach the German border. By December, virtually all of France, most of Belgium and part of the Southern Netherlands will have been liberated. On September 4th, 1944, Finland agrees to sign an armistice with the Soviet Union and expel German forces. One person who would chronicle running Germans out of liberated towns would be Albert Dean Bryant from Midland, Texas. Bryant served with the 87th Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron of the 7th Armored Division. And on September 11th, 1944, Bryant wrote a letter home to his family. He described the weariness and restlessness of battle, saying, There are things that happen over here which take complete control over your mind. The aftermath was something which almost made the danger and unpleasant things we had to endure worth it. People by the hundreds standing in the streets with hands upraised and shouting and laughing and crying with appreciation for being liberated. Bottles of wine and champagne, which would cost 20 bucks here in the U.S., were freely given to us as we went through the streets. Bottles which had dirt and dust on them to show they had been buried or hidden for years from the greedy Germans. A little over a month later, on October 27th, uh, Bryant was captured and spent the remainder of the war as a POW of the Germans. He would survive, though, and live to the age of 98 would get married, stay married for 65 years to the same woman, have a son and three daughters, love to play golf and to sing. Rest in peace, Albert Dean Bryant. Uh, even as the Allies liberated towns, the fighting was not over. The Germans attempted one last major offensive in the West, the Battle of the Bulge. December 16th, 1944, the Battle of the Bulge begins. Fitting name, the Allied Uncle Cox, bulging, finally about to wear Hitler's pussy out completely. It was Germany's last ditch military offensive, their Hail Mary, the Allies pressed into the western border of Germany. 
Attacking through the Ardennes forest in eastern Belgium on December 16th, hundreds of German tanks and several hundred thousand German troops broke through thinly held American lines. In deadly cold winter weather, German troops will advance some 50 miles into the Allied lines, creating a deadly bulge pushing into Allied defenses. Despite taking dreadful losses, U.S. forces managed to delay the enemy sufficiently to permit reinforcements to be moved into position to halt the German drive. By December 26th, it was clear that the German advance had been halted, short of its objective, though, the Meuse River. In the face of increasing Allied pressure, the Germans began to withdraw from the Battle of the Bulge on January 8th, 1945. The Americans eliminated all German gains by the end of January. Without halting, U.S. forces challenged the German defenses of the Siegfried Line, now undermanned after the heavy German losses during the Ardennes Offensive. The Americans suffered almost 90,000 casualties in this battle. The Germans lost around 100,000, the British around 15,000. Some of these losses are especially horrific. During the fighting, some captured American soldiers and Belgian prisoners were murdered by the Waffen-SS units in an atrocity known as the uh, Malmedy Massacre. On December 17, 1944, the the 1st U.S. Panzer Division of the 6th Panzer Army was heading west from Belgium, part of the general German advance. At the same time, a U.S. convoy of 30 vehicles and nearly 140 men of Battery B of the 285th Field Artillery Observation Battalion was heading south, and the two forces converged just before uh, noon, two and a half miles south of Malmedy. The Germans immediately began firing upon the Americans. U.S. troops panicked. Those who did not escape, including medical personnel, were they quickly surrendered. After being searched and relieved of their personal possessions, the U.S. troops were lined up in eight rows in a field and executed. Survivors of the atrocity recalled hearing laughter as the Waffen-SS troops fired upon the Americans. When the Germans left the site, at least 84 U.S. soldiers were dead. Just over 40 Americans would survive either by fleeing into the woods or pretending to be dead. The Malmedy massacre was uh, par for the course for how the Nazis often treated POWs. Despite winning the Battle of the Bulge, Allied soldiers uh, then had to trudge on through the snow towards Germany, right, and through enemy fire after their January victory. Wendell Wiley Wolfenbarger, was a husband, father, and postal employee from Neosho, Missouri. And on January 1st, 1945, Wendell wrote his wife. Well, I guess he went by Wiley. Wiley wrote his wife. I still can't say where I am, but I guess that as long as I'm not in the good old United States, it doesn't make any difference. I nearly cried when you told me about Wileen waking up and crying for me, but it can't be helped. Try to make her understand that it'll be some time before I can be there. Three days later, January 4th, Wendell wrote again. I wonder how everything is going down at the post office. Does Archie ever say anything about it? Man alive, how I wish I was back there. I would work 24 hours per day, Sundays included. Not say a word about it. No use bitching about it, though. I'm here. That's all there is to it. Are you and the kids all right? I really do miss you all more and more. Every time I look at your pictures, I get more homesick. But at the same time, I realize why we're here. And I know the job must be done. All my love to you and the kids, darling. Keep praying. Love, Wiley. Two weeks later, January 18th, 1945, near Burl, Luxembourg, Wiley was killed in action. Rest in peace, Wiley. Uh, Another soldier will be slightly luckier. On January 11th, Ronald N. MacArthur was the first gunner in the Heavy Weapons Company of the 45th Division, part of General Patch's 7th Army. They'd been ordered out between Christmas and New Year's to help close the gap in the line. This is how he would describe the afternoon of January 11th. We set our guns up on the high ground on each side of a trail in the woods. There were several tanks with us in the attack. It was all quiet nearly all afternoon. Only a few small arms fired at us during the day. Then all of a sudden, about four o'clock, we were hit with a terrific artillery barrage. The shells were coming in, hitting the trees and exploding. 
We were exposed to vicious tree burst shrapnel coming down on us. After some time, I told my assistant gunner to man the gun as I was going to cut some large branch logs, cut some large branch logs that had been knocked down from the shelling. The logs were to be placed over our foxhole to protect from further shell bursts. I left the gun and went about 100 yards towards the lead tank that had been knocked out during the battle. I got about four logs cut when wham! I was shot through the face by a German sniper. He had been left behind as we drove Germans off the hill. He was out in front of the knocked out tank. I fell flat on my face in about 15 inches of snow. My only thought was, when will he let me have it again? The bullet must have been a soft nose one as x-rays later revealed that I had pieces of shrapnel on my cheek and the roof of my mouth. The bullet had gone through my left cheek just below the jawbone and exited out my right cheek, taking nearly all of my upper teeth and gums as well as most of the lowers. I remember feeling numbness in my mouth. I thought my tongue was gone, but my hand in the opening was relieved to find it intact. The opening of my right cheek was up to under my eye and back nearly to my right ear. Our medic was nearby. He came and patched the wound with uh, sulfadizing powder. In short order, our Jeep was there. Each section of machine guns had its own Jeep. They took me and another GI out to be evacuated to an aid station and several hospitals on my way, finally to England and later home, the good old U.S. of A. Uh, Ronald would survive the war and be sent home to the U.S. He'd make a full recovery from his wounds. As full as you can after having so much of your fucking face shot up. Uh, not sure how his life ended up. Backing up on January 12th, 1945. Still in uh, January of 1945, the Soviets launched a new offensive liberating Warsaw and Krakow in, in January in that month. Uh, they captured Budapest after a two-month siege on February 13th, driving the Germans and their Hungarian collaborators out of Hungary in early April. From February 4th to the 11th, the last meeting of the Big Three, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, took place in the Soviet city of Yalta. Roosevelt and Churchill agreed to allow Stalin to control the governments of Eastern Europe at the war's end, thereby setting the stage for the Cold War. Again, all three men entered a bathroom together at the start of the meeting, this time at Stalin's insistence. And this time he left smiling. Rumor is they compared penis sizes again, but Stalin cheated because his was fully erect. Let's probably make sure that no one actually believes they kept doing this. They didn't. Uh, February of 1945, over 1,200 Allied bombers of the RAF and the U.S. Army Air Force launched four aerial attacks against Dresden. As a major center for Nazi Germany, uh, their rail and road network, Dresden's destruction was intended to overwhelm German authorities and services and clog all transportation routes with throngs of refugees. And there was another reason to bomb Dresden. Just a month before, some 19,000 U.S. troops had been killed at the Battle of the Bulge. Over three weeks before, U.S. troops had discovered the existence of Auschwitz. Undoubtedly, there was an emotional component to the decision to bomb Dresden. On February 13, 1945, American prisoners of war held in Dresden heard Dresden's fire sirens howl right above their heads. German guards moved them two stories down into a meat locker. When they came back to the surface, the city was gone. Remembered writer and social critic Kurt Vonnegut, one of the American POWs who'd witnessed the bombing of Dresden. He would write about it in his heralded fictional book, Slaughterhouse Five. In the time that Vonnegut and others hid underground, the British Bomber Command's blind illuminator aircraft had rained explosives and incendiaries all over the city. Then visual marker aircraft swooped low to drop thousands of flares and fire target markers. The main attack formation followed over 500 heavy Lancaster bombers loaded with explosives and incendiaries. The U.S. 8th Air Force attacked the next day with another 400 tons of bombs, launched yet another raid with 210 bombers on February 15th. With the German Luftwaffe destroyed and the anti-aircraft defenses in shambles, the Royal Air Force lost only six planes. 
On the ground, thousands of small fires merged into a powerful firestorm. They created such powerful winds, it sucked oxygen, fuel, broken structures, even fucking people into its flames. By the time the bombing stopped, February 15th, the raids destroyed roughly 75,000 homes. Around 25,000 people were dead. The bombing campaign on Dresden would become one of the most controversial attacks of the entire war. Uh, it wasn't the first bombing of the war. wasn't even the one to claim the most civilian lives. Why was it so controversial? Well, partially because of some bullshit propaganda purported by a Holocaust denier after the war. British author and historian David Irving would claim in his 1963 book, The Destruction of Dresden, that the bombing was the biggest single massacre in European history. His estimate of 150,000 to 200,000 dead was long accepted without dispute. Irving was later criminally convicted for Holocaust denial, however, and an actual government commission would end up with an estimate of 22,700 to 25,000 dead. Still an insane amount, but not nearly what Irving claimed. As shocking as such an encounter, uh, an enormous number of dead is, it did not stand out in the war's history of strategic bombing of cities. Most German cities have been flattened by 1945. Many left higher proportionate death rates and degrees of destruction. Uh, The bombing of Hamburg, for example, in July of 1943, generated the first large firestorm, killed more than 30,000 civilians. Also, the Luftwaffe uh, raids on Eastern European cities such as Belgrade, more than 17,000 dead, or Warsaw, up to 25,000 dead, uh, were likely more deadly, or at least Warsaw. On the ground, however, the scale of death and devastation seemed beyond compare to witnesses like Vonnegut, assigned to a sanitary cleanup crew after the bombing. POW Vonnegut had to dig into shelters and basements, which looked like a streetcar full of people who had simultaneously had heart failure, he said. Just people sitting in their cars, in their chairs, excuse me, all dead robbed of oxygen by the all-consuming firestorm. What a truly horrific uh, image. Does Hitler bear the primary responsibility for this bombing, though, or the Allies? Hitler targeted all kinds of civilians, like the victims of the Holocaust. Did the Allies need to commit actions like this to end the war as quickly as possible, prevent even more deaths than the 25,000 who died in Dresden? It's uh, a point we could go round and round and argue indefinitely. I don't claim to know enough about military strategy and what the Allies truly dealt with, in their war rooms in 1945 to know if this was a necessary decision or not. Uh, Many Germans perceived a particular injustice in the late bombing of Dresden in February of 1945, sentiment that gained international traction in the post-war years. Dresden was a densely crowded city in the winter of 1945, filled with refugees fleeing the advancing Red Army. For most of them, the end of the war looked near and inevitable, and a full-scale attack seemed unnecessary. However, Allied strategists were afraid of allowing the Wehrmacht to regroup within Germany's border if they eased up on their pressure. The U.S. Army alone had suffered almost 140,000 casualties, right, from December to January of 1945 and 27,000 just the week prior to Dresden. The heaviest losses in the Western Allies' war against Hitler. The longer the war dragged on, the more people were going to die. There was moral incentive to end it quickly. All right, the war in Europe. Almost over now as we head into March of 1945. Hitler's pussy. So close to being 110% worn out. She's been getting fucked hard by Britain, Soviet Union, America's Uncle Cox for a while now. Same time, triple penetration. And so many other allied nations have been doing quite a bit of fucking with their Uncle Dicks. Sneaking hits in between triple penetration thrusts. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Brazil, South Africa, and more. Just a hurricane of Uncle Dicks. Hitting Hitler's pussy from so many angles. March 7th, 1945, U.S. forces cross the Rhine River. April 4th, Slovakia surrenders. April 13th, Soviet forces capture Vienna. April 15th, San Marino doesn't fucking do anything. (laughs) They did get bombed back in September of 1944, though. And also in June of 1943. Both times by the Allies, thinking that they were hitting German targets. uh, Partially because San Marino did have a fascist government. First time the Allies were wrong. Whoops. Around 50 civilians did die. 
So sorry, San Marino. Glad you're back to not really doing anything anymore these days. Uh, you know, not getting bombed. April 16th, 1945, the Soviets launched their final offensive, the Battle of Berlin. Two and a half million Russian soldiers had reached the German capital. Hitler's pussy is quivering, not in a good way. Two weeks later, they reached the city center, are fighting within only a few hundred yards of Hitler's final refuge. Hitler retired to an underground bomb shelter located close to the chancellery, known as the Fuhrer Bunker. Expensive carpets and rugs covered the floors, priceless artwork taken from the chancellery, lining the walls, including Hitler's favorite painting of Frederick the Great, which hung on the wall above his desk in his comfortable private quarters. The last day Hitler ventured outside was on the morning of April the 20th, his 56th birthday. He was a far cry now from the triumphant conqueror of just five years earlier. Addicted to powerful opiates prescribed to him by his personal physician, Dr. Theodore Morell, visibly shaking from Parkinson's, looking much older than his age, the Fuhrer made his way out to the now ruined Chancery Garden to hand out medals to children of the Hitler Youth who had been brainwashed enough into still thinking the Nazis were going to somehow win this war. Following day, he ordered what remained of his forces to attack the advancing Soviets, and his orders were ignored. Upon hearing this, Hitler flew into a rage and blamed, of course, as a Jews. As a Jews, they will stop at nothing to destroy me. Why? They turn my own generals against me now. They are viable losses of all. All my generals are secret Jews. Evie tried to blame me yesterday for farting all the time in the bunker. She says it's rude. It is rude. I know, but it's not me. The Jews sneak down here when no one is looking. And they do their Jew toots. And I get the blame. I'm being attacked on all fronts. Uh, Hitler didn't rage in that way, of course. Uh, he was pissed, though. Ordered Himmler's representative in the bunker, General Fiegelin, to be shot. General Fiegelin also happened to be Eva Braun's brother-in-law to her pregnant sister. And even though Braun begged for his life to be spared, Hitler refused and he was killed. Needlessly evil tyrant right until the bitter end. On the night of April 28th into the 29th, Hitler dictated in his will, his will in his bunker in the form of a political and personal testament to Gertrude Trottle Jungi, one of his secretaries. Uh, soon afterwards, Hitler and his mistress, Eva Braun, get married. Accounts from two of the secretaries present recorded that they had been called together to see the newly married couple. Hitler and Eva emerged from the map room where the marriage ceremony had taken place, accompanied by uh, Goebbels, his wife, Magda, and Hitler's private secretary, secretary uh, Martin Bormann. Turning to Hitler's personal secretary, Gerda Christian, uh, Eva pointed to the wedding ring on her finger, received grad- congratulations. How fucking weird. Just, what a weird atmosphere. Ah, let's, let's celebrate. Yay. And they did celebrate. A party followed. Wine flowed as the Third Reich crumbled right above them. According to Christian later, Hitler talked mostly about the past and of happier times. Uh, he did also admit to her that he knew the war was lost. Added that he would never allow himself to be taken prisoner and intended to shoot himself. On the morning of the uh, 29th at roughly 9 a.m., the inhabitants of the bunker received news of the execution of Italian partisans uh, or by Italian partisans of Mussolini and his mistress, Claretta uh, Patashi. Allies were, uh, you know, wore uh, fucking Mussolini's pussy out big time with their powerful Uncle Dicks. Mussolini and, and uh, others had been captured by a group of communist partisans. After being held for a day, they were shot to death. Along with the bodies of some other executed fascists, their corpses were dumped on the ground in a city square in Milan, and then their remains were literally kicked, beaten, shot, stabbed, dragged to the street, hanged, etc. I looked at an autopsy photo of uh, Mussolini. A lot of hate taken out on his remains by some angry Italians. Uh, Hearing about all this further reinforced Hitler's determination that neither he nor Eva Braun would face a similar fate. He now ordered his staff to prepare for the end. An eyewitness noted that Hitler's SS bodyguards began destroying his personal papers. Elsewhere, one of the doctors was instructed by Hitler to poison he and Eva Braun's dogs. Oh, Django's just growled. Why, why do the dogs have to die? 
In the afternoon of April 29th, uh, Hitler goes from room to room of his large bunker, shaking hands with all but his immediate staff, saying a few words of encouragement and thanks to each. By the morning of April 30th, Russian forces are very near. The sounds of the battle heard in the bunker constantly. Even Hitler later emerged from their suite, their personal staff having been assembled. They go around the room, shaking hands silently now. Everyone knows the time has come. Youngie recalled that she and Christian both asked Hitler for a poison capsule, having noted the rapid effect that the poison had on Hitler's dog. Hitler gave them one each, saying as he did so that he was sorry he had no better parting gift, that he wished his generals had been as poised and brave as they were. Eva embraced Youngie and in what seems to have been her last recorded words said, take my fur coat as memory. I always like well-dressed women. Then saying, it is finished. Goodbye. Uh, but probably more like, it is finished. Goodbye. Uh, Hitler took Eva back into their rooms for the last time during the afternoon. Hitler shot himself. Eva took the poison that he had given her. Fuck yeah, bro. The Nazi pussy had been officially worn out. The allied Uncle Dicks had won. He just replaced uh, devil with Nazis. Kind of the same in this situation. So there'd be a bit more fighting, but the war was over. The remaining staff either committed suicide or made several bloody attempts to break out of the bunker and uh, through the Soviet lines. The bunker wasn't captured by Soviet forces for a few days, not until May 2nd. The bodies of Hitler and Braun, amongst others, dug up and Hitler later identified by dental records. Five days later, General Dwight Eisenhower accepts Germany's unconditional surrender on May 7th. The surrender takes effect May 8th, 11.01 p.m. Central European time. Germany, likewise, surrenders to Russia in Berlin. With that, the war in Europe is over, but World War II is not. Fighting in the Pacific will last for several more months. Bloody fighting. Imperial Japan refusing to accept that any chance of victory died with Germany and Italy's defeats. And we'll cover that next week. For now, let's get out of this big-ass timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, before we do anything else, I need to check back in with Associated Press reporter Lewis P. Lochner. We never found out what happened to that dazzling dish of a dame with no wedding ring who got whisked away in that continental. A5781. That was a license plate. Detective Maloney at the 5th Precinct downtown offered uh, me a favor and I cashed in on it. The owner of the car was one Richard Butts, real fathead. Bully with a bad reputation for getting handsy with the girls. Ran with the Tortellini crime family. I knew the Tortellinis hung around Bobby's honky-tonk way out in the sticks. A real dive that should have went belly up years ago, but hey, crime pays. So I drove out there on a rainy night, ready to see my gal again. Looking for the girl with the Rita Hayward smile smoking those old golds. And there she was, standing at the bar next to Dick. Our eyes met again. I saw fear in them. At least I thought I did. I cut a beeline straight for cut straight to the chase, ready to put my neck in the line for a dame I never met. God, she was gorgeous. She wore a blue polka dot dress that clung to her hourglass figure like I wanted to. Those lips, those red lips, I was hypnotized. She turned me into a real doll dizzy. And then, like something out of a dream, but maybe a nightmare, she spoke. I'm drats, I felt like a real clown. Uh, turned out my dame was a Bill Gunner's type, a real killer, worse than Dickie Butts. She wasn't scared, she was fucking with me. Everyone laughed, and I ran out. I only hoped the rain hid my tears from them. 
I jumped in my old jalopy, uh, drove back to where I was staying, watched a little Ed Sullivan, and sat on the toilet and shook hands with the milkman. Then went to bed alone, just like almost every other night. Oh, man, that was uh, not what I was hoping for at the end of his story. I also realized I, I think he was supposed to be in Europe, <laughs> Europe for that story. I might have put him back in the States, but uh, hmm, poor Lewis. Refocusing on World War II now, kind of. I have one more thing to uh, say about San Marino. During the war, San Marino did provide a safe harbor for more than 100,000 Italians and Jews fleeing Nazi and Italian fascist persecution. For such a tiny nation, they did something great. So hail San Marino. And, and that is it for this week. No recap, no takeaway this week, since this episode consumed me. And, uh, and it'll be continued next week, and then I'll be able to wrap it all up. So just going to uh, dive into some thanks and hit some updates for now. Uh, World War II, Europe's Darkest Hour, part one of two, has been sucked. If you are a diehard history buff, well, you might want to dig further into uh, people who specialize in these type of episodes. Uh, if not, I hope it was a, a pretty good summary. Yes, I uh, had to like pause uh, several times, <laughs> work on pronunciations. It is tricky, solo-wise, to keep things moving when you're shifted from country to country and all these historical figures and random towns. If only they could have only fought in battles like just like just like Paris, just only fight in like Berlin, Paris, Rome, like easy to play, uh, easy to pronounce places, and just had names like like Tom and maybe like Giuseppe, uh, you know, for Adolf could be about as German as it could get. That would have been that would have been nice. Uh, thank you as always to everyone involved. Starting with Queen of the Bad Magic. Queen of... My brain is just fucking done now. Between the cold and this episode. <laughs> Starting with Queen of Bad Magic. Lindsay Cummins. I should go into my newscaster voice. Uh, thanks to Logan, Keith, and uh, Tyler. Mostly Tyler C. today for producing and directing. The Art Warlock. Uh, he was busy working on fantastic merch items for badmagicmerch.com. The Suck Ranger Tyler C. Also thank him for producing a lot of the uh, social media clips that will come from this episode. Uh, thanks also to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Sick app. The Art Warlock, uh, Logan Keith, again, for just doing so many things behind the scene, like working on social media with uh, the Suck Ranger and our social media team headed, headed off by strategist Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans with the initial research this week. So good. The Cult of the Curious uh, 2 private Facebook page uh, remains in purgatory. But Cult of the Curious 3 out of 5 stars now active. Thanks to Bodhi Sunyata for starting that and hand, handing off the uh, admin keys to Logan. Not going to moderate this one in the hopes that that will keep it alive. No post approvals. It's going to be wilder. But now we won't be responsible for approving posts and that's what keeps getting us fucking shut down. I'll share more details at some point when I'm not overwhelmed with content. Uh, but that's the plan. Uh, thanks also to the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit. And the Bad Magic subreddit. Uh, next week's episode, one we've already uh, previewed, we're off to the Pacific Theater of World War II. So a lot more fighting ahead. Scope, scale again of World War II, just mind-blowingly massive. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Super Sucker, uh, Nichelle Viach. V-E-A-T-C-H. Vyach. Vach Vich. Who the fuck knows? Nichelle. I feel confident about it. Uh, she has daddy issues. The best kind. And she writes in with a subject line of, Hello again, this is Nichelle. I'm trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. 
Just kidding, Suckmaster. I'm writing to uh, you again in the hopes that you will do my bidding for me. I'm going to do my best to have you to have less blah, blah, blah and more good shit in this email. No meat sack is perfect, and my father is no exception. My parents battled with addictive, with active addiction pretty much my entire life. Growing up a child of addicts is just not a fun time, to put it simply. And for a long time, I thought my adult life would not include my parents. I'd seen them attempt getting clean, what felt like a million times, and it was always followed with another relapse. But hear this. This is not a sad email. My parents are now coming up on six years sober. And my life is fucking beautiful. More so than I could ever have imagined growing up. I'm thankful every day that I have both of my parents active in my life. It's the greatest feeling to call them up and tell them about how much I'm kicking ass at life. One thing I want them to know is that they never failed at doing. One thing I want them to know, they never failed at, uh, they never failed at ra- okay, raising me right. I'm determined as hell. I won't back down for shit. I shoot shit straight. I love big and live my life exactly how I want without the worry of others' opinions. Oh, that's awesome. So now suck master my bidding. Would you please wish my father, Robert Vietch, Vietch, uh, Vietch, uh, the happiest of birthdays. I'm just going to say it, Vietch. It can be at least a joke for you. Never seen a word like that as far as the name. Uh, the happiest of birthdays for his 57th birthday in this, this November 15th. He is one badass motherfucker and an awesome dad. I love you. He was the first one to introduce me to dance comedy, to my comedy when I was in middle school. So when I found times, so I instantly knew I had to introduce him to the cult of the curious. Thanks again, Suckmaster. Hail Nimrod, praise Josefina, and good boy Bojangles, and Nichelle Vietch. Uh, thanks, Nichelle. Uh, what a great daughter and boss bitch you are. Hail Josefina, hail Nimrod. Sorry, I have no fucking clue how to say your last name. Uh, happy birthday to your dad, Bobbert. Mr. Vietch. Uh, Mr. Robert Bobbert. Young man. Glad you're kicking ass along with your daughter. Good on you. And thanks for recommending her my comedy. Appreciate you both. All right, most of the time our dreams don't fucking make sense to others. And when we try to translate them and explain them, we sound like idiots. Shay Marco is an exception. A tale of a uh, suck-related dream. I think you might want to get a kick out of So I'm going to uh, relate here. Shay writes, Dear Mr. Suck Nasty and the rest of you wonderful people with the Bad Magic team, I've discovered that Dan Cummins, immortal in your eyes, is actually a god. Well, so I thought anyway. I spent an evening after college and then worked doing absolutely fuck all outside of laying down and listening to Time Suck. As a longtime listener, this wasn't too uncommon for me. I'd often be found listening to the show while performing a basic task in the background. However, after finishing one episode, episode 315, and bouncing to 320, I fell asleep shortly after starting it, and the results were shocking. I dreamed exclusively of your silky, soothing voice constantly narrating and throwing out wacky jokes. It was as if this dream were reality, to the point that when I woke up, I was confused for a few seconds. I heard your voice constantly telling me what I was going to do next, which, because of the nature of episode 320, just happened to be fucking eating people. I I dreamt of kidnapping, cooking, and eating people while desperately trying not to be discovered, all while you were mocking me. I started thinking you were some kind of God guiding me while also being far too mighty to consider my life valuable enough to cease your mockery of me. It wasn't until I woke up several hours later that I realized I was dreaming and that cocky motherfucker in my head was you. Perhaps this cult thing could pay off after all. You're already giving me commands in my dreams, oh Lord sucker of divine morbid curiosity. Why not make a full-on cult at this point? Anyway, thank you and your fellow peers for the absolute wonderful show you keep on doing here and for all the laughs over views. Oh, it's so nice. If I am so lucky as to hear this on your show, slap on a shout out to one Mickey Shaw, a very old friend of mine who happened to recommend you some time ago. Keep on sucking. Praise Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Shay Marco, uh, that probably had too many Benadryl, <laughs> probably had too much Benadryl sucker. Uh, love it, Shay. What a wild ass dream that was. Hope I narrate more horror for you going forward. Maybe don't fall asleep listening to the Toy Box Killer. 
uh, Joseph Fritzl. And yeah, thank you, Mickey Shaw, for the recommendation. Spread the suck via word of mouth. Uh, truly no better way, and it's always appreciated. And and thanks again for the kind words, uh, Shay. I'm so glad people like this. I do get definitely hard on myself, like especially like in a moment like this, you know, it's like I prep and prep on some of these episodes, and I feel like, okay, got it perfect. I've gone over all the little pronunciation guides. I feel like, at least I think I do, and you know, and, and Sophie spent so much time, and I spent so much more time, uh, day after day, and I get it all, and then I get in here, and sometimes my mouth is like, hey, uh, hey, dipshit, what were you thinking? You thought you could fucking waltz through <laughs> this battlefield of a script and knock it out like it's a movie. Golly! But I'm glad that it is just like a uh, appreciated still. And I get crazy in my head. In my head, I get worked up because I imagine all other podcasters just fucking nailing every single, never having to repeat themselves, pronouncing everything perfectly. But then I will sometimes listen to some other stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, this that's just being human. Like in my head, I, I do this in a lot of ways in life. I get like everybody else is doing things perfectly and you are an idiot self, uh, but not necessarily true. So, but it's nice to hear from other people. Uh, now, big hearted sucker, Sabrina Jensen writes in with uh, info pertaining to last week's MMIW episode. Greetings, Dan, the master sucker and the rest of the time. So crew, I just finished, finished listening to the blood and the reservation episode. Let me start off by saying, wow, that was a heavy episode, but one so important to share. I wanted to write in because I have my own, albeit indirect experience with this that I wanted to share. A little over 10 years ago, I was part of a church group that went on mission trips to the Pine Ridge reservations to reach out to the youth there and be of service. I was a part of that for about five years in a row. Besides outreach, our other goals were to interact with the people there, learn from them and their struggles. And we also had fundraised so we could build a new rec center for them so that the kids and young adults had a place to go hang out and do stuff. It was honestly really fulfilling to see the native kids get to use the stuff we built for them and have a good and safe time. Anyways, during my time there, I got to know several of the younger girls from the tribe and they were willing to open up to me and share their life stories. It was heartbreaking. I remember one little girl around the age of five told me that she didn't know where her mom was uh, or her older sister and that they had just disappeared. Only adult in her life was her uncle, but he was constantly wasting his money on drinking. So she had to teach herself how to make mac and cheese for her and her little brother, who was about two at that time. I didn't really think about it then, but after hearing the episode and recalling that child's story, I have no doubt that what happened to to that mother and older sister is probably everything you described in your episode. It's just so sad to see these people fending for themselves like this. They have little to no protection from the government or anybody. I know our little church group didn't solve any of the underlying problems but they were that they were dealing with, but I hope that these people can see change someday and get the rights and protections they deserve. Thank you for researching and giving this subject much needed attention. P.S. If you read this on air, could you give a shout out to my husband, Greg? Who got me hooked on time suck over three years ago. We just passed our one-year wedding anniversary back in October, and we're expecting our first child, Alex, at the beginning of January. Little Alex will definitely be exposed to time suck as soon as he can. Oh, and my birthday is coming up on November 17th. And if not right on air, I just wish you the best of days, and I hope you win the lottery or something. Thanks. Ah, Sabrina, I hope you win the lottery or something, Sabrina Jensen. Uh, thanks for uh, sharing your sharing that story. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And I hope this episode leads a bit, you know, to a bit more help for people who need it. People who have truly been put in a no no win situation, especially on the reservations. Uh, happy birthday, Sabrina. I hope you have a good one. Uh, hello, Greg. Look at you getting Sabrina pregnant. Sounds like your uh, penis is a great match for her vagina. I wish both of you and your dick in your vagina and your unborn child all the best. Hello, Safina. I, I hope, I hope that Greg, that you wear Sabrina's pussy almost all the way out. Not quite. Last one, some Freedom of Information Act. Inside info coming from protective sucker Anthony Thornton defending his wife who continues to refuse to help people in need 
Like the women wanting more info about the MMIW crisis. JK, he writes, hey, Muck, <laughs> Muck Saster. You almost fucked me up there. King of the Mush Mouths. All right. Nice one. Just so you know, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, can be pronounced FOIA. Okay, sure. Why not? FOIA requests. Uh, I know this because my lovely wife is a FOIA specialist by the fed- for the federal government. I'm not saying it's the case with groups from the Blood on the Reservation, but you'd be surprised how many people think that a FOIA request is some sort of magic spell that requires the government to tell the requester what they want to know, including such things as everything the government has ever done. Confirmation of conspiracy theories, personal information about government officials, and the existence of aliens. Oh, that's so great. She's just a government employee. Not the gate guard at the warehouse from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Suck it up. Leave my wife alone. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. That Raiders of the Lost Ark reference killed me. Oh, uh, man, that's fair. I can't imagine how many requests your wife and team. I love that they get like personal information. Like you're just going to like put in a, a FOIA request and be like, hey, I want to know where Hillary lives. <laughs> I want Hillary Clinton's uh, cell phone number. Now, uh, if your wife works in California, the state should use all that money to hire her some help. Gosh dang. Oh my heck, let's make sure offices are staffed properly. But yeah, I can only imagine the wackadoodles she has to hear from every week. Hail Nimrod, Anthony. Hail Nimrod, everybody. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bank. Please don't start World War III this week, Meat Sacks. It would be a great episode if I lived, but it'd be a lot of research. And I would rather not go through all the research and, you know, what the millions and millions of people went through with World War II. Let's, let's all just, instead of living through anything like that, keep learning about history. So maybe we don't have to repeat it all. Maybe we can just keep on sucking. Dear Starry, I am so frustrated with the juice today again. This morning, I know that I had more toothpaste in my toothpaste tube, but when I went to put it on my toothbrush, that nothing would come out. I, and I wondered to myself, who took my toothpaste? The juice. The juice took my toothpaste. After this morning, the dog is this especially stinky, stinkier than the dog has ever been. Who made my dog so stinky? I can only surmise is that the Jews put some sort of stink spell on my dog to try to get inside my head. They will stop at nothing to destroy me. I must I must lay down. My, my back is a little bit hurting today. I don't know what happens in my sleep. I go to bed feeling fine and I wake up with the back pain. And Eva says maybe we should get a new mattress. I say maybe we should lock our doors better to keep the night Jews out come and poke and prod and move me around in the night to ruin my sleep. Also, I wish we had some kind of video games or something here in the bunker to play. It's quite boring. I'm tired of all the Heil Hitlers at the funeral of not doing well in the war. And it would just be fun to play like Super Mario Brothers or something. Something that hasn't been invented yet. I, I'm just babbling. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.